Thank you for listening to the BJJ Brick Podcast. We'll be bringing you Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and good times. We hope to flatten your Jiu-Jitsu learning curve, help you get the most out of your grappling ability, and meet your goals both on and off the mat. Welcome back, my friends. I'm Joe Thomas. I'm here with my good buddy, uh, Byron Big Baller Jabara and Good Time Gary. Wait a minute. Stop. Break. That's our other podcast. Welcome back, my <laughs> friends. I'm Joe Thomas. I'm here with my good buddies, Byron Jabara and Gary Hall. This is the BJJ Brick Podcast. This is episode episode 349. We don't have an interview per se for this episode. Byron and I got together with fellow podcasters from the BJJ campaign, uh, Jeff and Phil, and we discussed kind of the transitional period from white belt to blue belt. So stick around for that. I think everybody can learn something. Let's start with a quote. Experience is that marvelous thing that enables you to recognize a mistake when you make it again. Franklin P. Jones. Yeah, this is, is directly related to jujitsu. I'm not even going to do an off the mat version of this. I'm just going to take this right on the mats. And um, at first, it seems like, well, what do you mean you recognize a mistake once you've already made it? It's too late then. But in jujitsu, I think you make mistakes and you start to recognize them a little bit earlier and a little bit earlier. And eventually, you start to recognize them when there's still time to recover from that mistake. And then you start to recognize when the mistake is about to happen. And I think that is what experience is. You, you just start to recognize earlier and earlier and earlier. And pretty soon you recognize when the tendency comes up to mis- make the mistake and you do something different. Um, I experienced this in a, in a microcosm. One time I was training in Brazil. I just started training again. And the guy, the black belt I was training with, and I was a white belt, um, he didn't speak much English. And he, he got me in a flower sweep right off the bat. We were doing training from closed guard. And then he hit it again. And then the next time he hit it, right before the sweep, he paused. And I thought, oh, here's my chance. So I I posted the wrong leg out. I posted a leg out to try and get (laughs) leverage to pull my arm free. Of course, he just grabbed that leg and used it as a lever. And he did the sweep again. And then the next time he he paused again. I was smart enough not to put that leg out. I tried something else. And he countered that. And this went on for like a 10-minute roll. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and you, you see where I'm going. I made mistake after mistake after mistake, but I started to catch it a little earlier and a little earlier. And I probably learned as much in that 10 minute roll with no conversation um, as in any other 10 minute roll with a, a lecture or some advice afterwards. It was just, a, to me, a brilliant way to teach jujitsu and a good example of how uh, you recognize the mistake when you make it again and again and again. Yeah, and and Joe, just on that one, there was a language barrier there, right? I mean, yeah, yes, he spoke very little English. Okay, that that's cool. That's that a good way to teach. Joe, yeah, Joe only spoke French at that time, so it was yeah, even so, so it was a real mess. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, I do, I do like this quote, and this episode with with BJJ campaign, we do thank them for hopping on here, and and you could find uh, I think they're in this episode as well. Uh, or this kind of uh, discussion. But we talk about blue belts. We talk about ourselves as blue belts and experiences that we have and or had and, and, and that sort of thing. And this reminds me of a blue belt experience that I had at a tournament. So the, the quote, experience is a marvelous thing that enables you to recognize a mistake you made uh, when you make it again. So <clears throat> I, I was at a tournament. I'm trying to pass this guy's guard. I stand up. 
and he sweeps me uh, with a pretty simple sweep. I end up on my back and fight back, and I end up again on the top position. I stand up again. He does the exact same sweep. And I and just as as he hit it the first time, I thought, oh man, that was a good sweep. As he hit the second time, I'm thinking, I can't believe he did it to me twice. <laughs> and and so uh, it, it's kind of nice to get hit with a sweep like that instead of a submission like that because it only happened once as a submission. But when I uh, got back to my gym and and, and we were training, uh, definitely that sweep was uh, on the list of things to learn how to deal with. So that story about me getting swept by the same sweep twice in the same match, uh, it it definitely was a mistake I recognized as it was happening. <laughs> it was like it was I was just shocked. I couldn't believe that I fell for it again. And it wasn't a particularly confusing sweep. I I was aware of the sweep. He just had a lightning fast trigger on that and and it was it was good, but it it was uh it was mistakes I had made, and, and it, it might, when my mistake matches up against something he was good at, happened twice, and uh, found that and fixed it. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Kind of, you know, first of all, you say experience is a marvelous thing that it enables you to recognize a mistake when you make it again. For me, that was my coach. Uh, every time I made a mistake, my coach would yell at me and hit me with a stick and uh, always uh, scared me. Uh you know, at work, it's my boss telling me I made the mistake again. Um, but I, I think when I first started, you know, you guys were talking about blue belt days. You know, let's go back to white belt days. Um, you know, I'd make a mistake, and I'd kind of like what Joe was saying. I'd make a mistake over and over again. I don't. Sometimes, a lot of times, I don't even know if I recognize the mistake. Um, you know, like let's say Joe was getting swept over and over again. Do I mean? I guess because you're getting swept you recognize it when you end up, you know, going from top to bottom. But do you realize what you did wrong? And that happened to me a lot is I would just do the same thing over and over again. And we didn't have a lot of higher level people, you know, 18 years ago. There wasn't a, a lot of online stuff, wasn't a lot of higher level people. Our instructor was, was Johnny a blue or a purple belt? He was purple. Fire? He was a purple, purple. belt, yeah. Yeah, so... I don't know. I, I just kept making the same mistakes over and over again and right, really probably too many times. And I didn't realize what I was doing. And, um, you know, so I don't even know if I recognized it. And, you know, as I got more into the game and better, you know, I would, I started to recognize the mistakes, but you know, I, I was a very slow learner and I think it took me longer than, than most people. Hey guys, I'm going to call an audible here. Uh, and that, uh, so during this interview portion or the discussion portion, Gary couldn't make it. He was, he was working or doing something. We don't really know what he's doing. <laughs> he's not here. He's we got never a whole know another life really of criminal activity <laughs> and who knows? Anyway. Actually, uh, actually I was at my, uh, tiger zoo. I was, uh, <laughs> I, I got a partner. You got a partner. <laughs> Uh, so after this, well, when we air this, let's, let's, uh, we have an, are we every, if you're new to the podcast, every episode, we, we talk about an article of the week. Uh, we're going to scrap that and we're going to ask Gary a couple of the questions that we were asking each other about the white belt and blue belt, uh, transition and, and that sort of thing. That way he could participate a little bit in that as well. Cause I think you're, uh, 
your input will be valuable on this as well. And that's kind of the theme of the episode is us as blue belts, us as late white belts and kind of what that, that time period. And, uh, what do you think Joe? Um, I hope you remember what we talked about. Cause I threw my notes away, but yeah, we can come up with a few we, questions. I've got the notes right here. <laughs> I've still got my notes. Uh, if you saw yeah, my desk, you would questions up. <laughs> So uh, before we do that, I want to uh, bring in an off the mat lesson real quick, and it it it's interesting. So every every episode we uh, like the article, we we have a off the mat topic or maybe an on the mat topic, and then we'll take it to the other one. So in this one, uh, I have an off the mat thing that happened, and and then I'm going to bring it into jujitsu world. Uh, I was at this the fire station. That's where I work, and we were watching the news, and they show they were showing nurses after nurses um, having you know extremely rough days with with the virus, and 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 they were uh, at risk, and some of them were getting the virus, and and some of them were quitting, and and that that bothered me that here we need uh, nurses as like more now than ever. And some of them are just quitting and they interviewed one and she said, this is not what I signed up for. I have to quit. This is not why I'm a nurse. And it, and it was, I can't believe she's, that's my, my response. I can't believe she's quitting now when we, we, we need her more than ever. And, and that was the discussion around the fire table. You know, these things we discussed, we solve all the world's problems. <laughs> and, and, and one of the other guys said, she didn't sign up for that. She signed up to be a nurse. She signed up for very little risk uh, to her own well-being. She signed up to help take care of patients. The things she signed up for, she's going to see, you know, some patients pass away. She's going to, she's going to be doing uh, different work that uh, I wouldn't want to do. But it's, it's that is true. She didn't sign up for a risky job, and she was going into the hospital, and she will likely get uh, COVID nineteen. Um, and when he said that, I knew I was wrong. It was like, it's, it's interesting to people debate stuff all the time. And it's rarely somebody's like, yeah, I'm wrong. <laughs> you, you changed my mind with like three sentences. She didn't sign up for that. She signed up for a low risk job and her job just became a high risk job. She's right. And, and she has the right to quit. And that's why some of them that aren't quitting, most of them are not, um, really respect that. Uh, when this, when this thing started coming out. I will. I, I figured I will probably get this. Uh, we go into a lot of people's houses that are sick. We're seeing it already. Um, people, it's it's very likely that uh, that most of the fire service will experience this uh, virus. Uh, but I signed up for a job that in, that has inherent risks. Now this isn't a risk that I thought I would be taking, but it's sure like I didn't consider it to be. Oh well, I shouldn't. I should maybe quit my job. That wasn't an option on the table. This is just, I'm just serving my community. There's some risk involved, and that's uh, that's okay. It's, we try to mitigate that stuff. But uh, just thinking about those nurses, what they sign up for, not this. <laughs> and so I understand her point of view, uh, and I kind of got just with, with three sentences, I got my opinion rearranged. And I'm thinking about jujitsu, and you, somebody comes in, and they maybe wanting to do a self-defense uh, style of, of martial art, or they maybe they want to get in shape, or whatever the reason th- that we come to the mats. That's why we sign up. 
and when we are in situations where we're thinking, this isn't why I signed up. If you're if you come to, to jiu-jitsu to get in good shape and you find yourself in an MMA class getting black eyes and busted arms and knees or whatever, like always that student will wonder, like, what did I what did I sign up for this? Or if they're especially if they're not having uh, you know, they haven't changed their reason for being there, which is perfectly acceptable. But uh, that evaluation, what did I sign up for? Not this. And just as coaches and instructors, gym owners, know why your students sign up and, and try to provide them with that service if that's the gym that is the best for them. And also know that students, though the why they're there, can change as well, and that's that's awesome. But uh, when you when you start pushing uh, somebody who's a hobbyist or somebody who has a a full time job and they're doing this to, for to, to have some friends and to work out with their friends and uh, to learn an art form, uh, and you start pushing them to compete, know why they signed up, know what they signed up for, and if you're pushing them to do something they didn't sign up for, they might go somewhere else, they might quit altogether and do something else with their time. When you were talking about, uh, you know, being a hobbyist and going into the MMA class and getting black eyes, also I kept thinking about, you imagine you show up for your first class or, you know, your first year and you're you're still brand new and you show up for the competition class and you get paired with Paul Harris. Like, how brutal would that be? Yeah, that's not it. That would not be, (laughs) yeah, that would not be fun at all. Uh, you know, it'd lead to me quitting and not being able to walk properly. But, you know, you're going back to talking about, you know, the, the nurse, this isn't what I signed up for. And, you know, you were talking about when you went to the fire department, you signed up for it. And, you know, I remember talking to you before you went on the fire department and, you know, you were thinking about it. And that was one of the things you talked to me about the risk. You know, I just remember you specifically wanting to go to lunch to talk about it. And, uh, you know, so we went to, uh, lunch, your favorite spot, McDonald's and you <laughs> talked about, and you talked about how you were afraid that you might fall out of a tree while you're getting a cat and you were a little <laughs> bit worried about that. So yeah, I remember, uh, remember you talking about that a long time ago, kind of neat to, uh, bring it back full circle. Well, thanks, Terry. I may not remember that conversation, but I, I will tell you getting a cat down from a tree is a violent process on the person trying to get the cat. <laughs> put on Have your you fire glove, ever? put on your fire coat, yeah. and there's a lot of times there's a lot of pee up there. <laughs> mostly Have the cats. <laughs> yeah. Uh, most really of the time, have? yeah, most of the time the cat, you just you just say, hey, we're going to give this, uh, you know, some time, and the cat will probably come down. That's the safest way. And then you can what check back with them. it with the hose? That's not uh, ideal. I've heard of guys doing that. I've never been part of that. But that, you, you, okay. it's definitely physically possible to knock a cat out of a tree with the, with the hose. But uh, yeah. I, I've, I've heard stories of that. That's not, not what I'm looking to do. Um, <laughs> the, the cats possess, possess the skills to get down. The, the old saying that, that we have is, I've never seen a cat skeleton in a tree. <laughs> they don't die up there. They come down. Good one. So, or the skeleton falls out later. Yeah, it just falls apart in pieces. <laughs> and, <laughs> could be could be either one. <laughs> yeah. And then with erosion, it gets covered up and it looks like it was just buried underneath the tree. <laughs> uh, yet again, so this twice in my life, in this podcast, I've talked about just having my mind changed. One was about the nurse and being upset with her for just quitting her job because it's not what she signed up for. And two was I always assumed cats didn't die in trees, but Joe just, he's right. The skeleton would fall out of the tree. 
and uh, maybe they do die up there. That's depressing, Joe. <laughs> they don't. They don't. They don't die in trees. They die from the impact when they get so exhausted and malnourished that they can't stay in the tree anymore. Man, that's morbid. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> well, I'm hey, telling before you. we go, before we go any further, though, Drag I just want to say this: head onto the mats, uh, Joe. <laughs> no, I'm, well, I'm not. Dra- I'm not dragging it back on the mats yet. Uh, we're all pretty humble on this show, but Byron's probably the most humble guy I know. And Byron, I, I, Byron, I just, I just want to say thank you and. Uh, in, in this time, man, our first responders, any, anybody that's in an essential job, not, I mean, working, anybody that's in an essential job right now and has to go out, my hat's off to you. And Byron, you take, uh, you take more risks than most people. You take more risks than Gary and I. We're both essential, but I just go down to the boats and visit with guys, and Gary just goes to the office. But Byron, you take a risk every day, and I appreciate it. Okay. Gary, I heard you trying to bump in there and take some credit for being <laughs> essential, but <laughs> you and me are a different kind of essential. Uh, well, thanks, uh, Joe. That uh, I, I do appreciate that. Speaking of being humble, I've written uh, or made two audiobooks for about you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what speaking about, of being humble, yeah. speaking of being humble, I've written two of the greatest audiobooks <laughs> known to man. <laughs> Uh, no, it's. Uh, I want to tell you about for real quick for your first year of Brazilian Jiu Jitsu audiobook. Uh, I walk you through uh, what that year is going to be like, how to uh, get through that year successfully, and enjoy your training, and all the way from the beginning of finding the right gym to fitting Jiu Jitsu in your schedule to the right techniques, and ending with if you want to do a tournament, how to do that and, and have success with that. It's eleven ninety nine. It's a, it's about two and a half hours long. You could uh, find it in the shop. There'll be a link to the shop in the show notes. And uh, check it out from there, my friends. It's very similar to a podcast, but it's uh, just me talking to you about your first year of grappling. So, Joe, uh, what, uh, we're, I'm excited to have the BJJ campaign guys, uh, Jeff and Phil, on here. So we mostly talk about uh, being a blue belt and, and our own personal stories. I think it's important to hear some of those because uh, we... We all have different stories, but you do see common situations and common themes throughout those. So if listeners, if you're that white belt range, that blue belt range, uh, you'll definitely see pieces of ourselves in your story. And uh, I think that I think these are all interesting stories that, we, that we're going to hear during this interview or this, uh, I guess, panel or discussion. What do you call it, Joe? What do you think? I, I'd call it a discussion. And, and I think a little bit it goes back to our quote and that experiences when you uh, – learn from your mistake again but ideally we want to learn from other people's experiences and i think that's kind of what we're trying to do here is share our experiences and um hopefully if you're coming up that you can learn from them and maybe avoid some mistakes all right let's air the discussion with our friends from bjj campaign welcome to episode 78 of the bjj campaign podcast my name is jeff boone i'm an a3 blue belt three strikes phil cores a two stripes and uh my name is joe thomas and i'm with bjj brick and i am uh a2h uh no stripe purple belt my name is byron jabara uh, i probably am an a2 and uh one stripe black belt all right so so we're all here for a conversation and what we want to talk about is the transitional period between white belt and blue belt say 
three, four stripe white belt to two stripe blue belt. We all know that that's a period of time where we see some dropout. So um, we're going to talk about that and hopefully get some uh, uh, insight and some advice for both of our listeners. Before we get into that, guys, let's talk about how long were you guys white belts? And uh, um, yeah, let's start there. How, how long and when were, was everybody a white belt? So, yeah, this is Jeff, and I was yeah. a white belt for 13 and a half months. And part of that going from white to blue um, was that I started, I had a baseline of wrestling. So I wrestled 10 plus years, uh, junior high, high school, college, and things of that nature. So I already had a baseline in grappling, um, which I think kind of sped up my progression through white belt to blue. I was a white belt for 14, 15 months um, with no background at all. But after about three to four months, I was going about five days a week. Well, that's a lot. That's a lot of days a week. This is Joe. And uh, I was a white belt between 2004 and 2000. Oh, I don't know, maybe 12. Now, there was a period of time for four or five years there where I wasn't able to train. But um yeah, I had a long white belt period, and I think about 2012 got my blue belt. Yeah, and this is Byron. Uh, I got I started in 2004, and, no, 2002, and uh, I probably was a white belt for around two years. Okay, so, yeah, give or take. I I don't know for sure. Nice. So. What what were we all like as a white belts, uh, and how was things coming together for us as we neared that uh, uh, blue belt level? For for me as a white belt, and again, Byron and I both started back a long time ago. The game seemed simpler back then. I was really a closed guard guy for the first couple of years when it comes to guard, and and added half guard just before I got my blue belt. That's kind of where things were coming together. I was branching out a little bit, but I was kind of old school. Um, Closed guard, Kimuras, uh, and hip bump sweeps. That sounds super similar to what I was doing other than the Kimura. I tried a lot of them, but none of them ever worked. Uh, I was I was definitely starting, and being on the smaller side, closed guard kind of was my comfort zone, basically. I tried to do a lot of collar chokes and things like that, but um, no matter where I was, I was always trying to get back to that because that was where I felt safe. And it's funny you say the hip bump sweep, Joe, because uh, I remember the first time Phil and I, we we partnered up from the very first time that um, he came into class. And um, and I remember one of the first lessons was the hip bump sweep. And right away he did the hip bump sweep. I'm kind of a slow learner, um, you know, just in full disclosure. And but it was it was interesting because I said, Phil, this is your sweep. And from then on, he was hip bump sweep and still to this day has a great hip bump sweep and now great hip bump sweep to uh, guillotine as well. Man, I love that combination of hip bump and guillotine. It's uh, I still use that all the time. I, I like that uh, for myself as a white belt. Uh, I kind of sucked. <laughs> like just um, <laughs> overall, uh, I was. Uh, trying to play guard because I didn't have a choice. I I I couldn't get a top game going because I didn't have a good sweep and I didn't have any. Uh, I didn't have much of a wrestling game. Sounds really familiar. <laughs> I would. I think I would have liked to play top game more, but it just didn't happen. I played guard. 
I would do uh, an arm bar, and my arm bar was bad enough to where they could usually just pull their arm right out pretty easily, and then I would try to triangle the, the remaining arm. Um, neither one of them mm-hmm. had a ton of success, and uh, they were just me trying things, really. Byron, that sounds like Phil's game uh, in 2018. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good it's a good game to start with because you don't have to like if my guard if my game would have been, you know, like around getting the back or uh, getting mount or something like that, I would never have got to play my game. I just didn't possess the skills to get to those positions. Yeah, we we've kind of talked about that a lot, and and me noticing that. I started with close guard and I seemed to really like it, but I think I really liked it because that was the only place where I had any sort of chance. Like I, I wasn't taking anybody down and I was not sweeping anybody. So the close guard was kind of the only place that felt good for me. Yeah, and good for yeah, you I'm, for getting a close guard. It's hard. It's hard to obtain close guard a lot. A lot of times as well. Um, yeah, that's why I think I like butterfly so much. Is it's so it's it's hard to <laughs> block the butterfly guard from happening. That's true. That's something Jeff and I have been working on recently looking into a lot of the different butterfly stuff so that might be the natural progression people kind of tend to want to take and that's our that's our move of the month of the week because we change weekly we don't change we're part of that move of the month uh group that you guys have but it's like weekly our our attention shifts from one thing to another yeah well if you have a move of the month man there's a lot of um a lot of ways you can break that down uh, going back to the closed guard, though, and you guys were talking about moving towards um, uh, butterfly guard. Man, getting one butterfly hook in can just be magic. You know, there's so many sweeps off the, you know, trapping one arm and getting the opposite butterfly hook in and things like that. So um, that that's always been a part of my game, I think, is having closed guard and then getting one butterfly hook in. Yeah, no, for sure. You, you know, and I kind of had a different experience um, as as a white belt going through white belt. And that was, uh, and Phil and I have talked about this, and that is that, you know, coming into jujitsu, um, I weighed 312 pounds. And um, so within the first six months, I lost 60 pounds, right? And um, so I had that wrestling background. So I was, you know, I was constantly playing top and not really developing my game on the bottom until like that mid first or second stripe on my white belt. And that's whenever, that's whenever a good friend and training partner uh, of ours said, Jeff, you have to play off of your back. You can't, you can't just, you know, you, you're not good at passing or top. It's just, you have the capability of playing it because you have a number of years of wrestling and know what side control is and, and that sort of thing. And, um, so that was a benefit to me to have that trusted advisor say, Hey man, you need to, you need to do nothing to play guard. And that's what I've been doing ever since I was like, right after my first stripe on my white belt is just simply playing guard. Um, and, and going into those other things, like we had the, the you know, hip bump sweeps, um, not so much that, but the, the um, flower sweep, that's my favorite sweep, and um, others, and use, utilizing butterflies we were just talking about. Man, Jeff, I've always told people, nothing makes me happier when looking at the progression of my friends and teammates than when a wrestler starts playing guard. You know, you, they, they all come in and they all want to smash. At your size, with your experience, you were that new guy that all the three and four stripe white belts and new blue belts just probably hated to roll with. But uh, 
then when you start playing guard, that's like a, a big point of progression it, it for you. Yeah, no, I think it definitely was, you know, um, and, and it's so funny because the, the person who, who told me this, uh, he's, he's a big guy himself, uh, very strong. We, we always compliment each other that way because, you know, that's a backhanded compliment whenever you're a bigger guy, uh, that you're strong, but he's actually really, really good at jujitsu. <laughs> and, uh, and so whenever he told me this, I really took it to heart and I was like, I was like, yeah, you know, and you know what? Now I consider myself a bottom player. You know, we kind of talk about where our game's at today. M- man, I'm I'm a I'm a butterfly guard, open guard, half guard player, and um and I love I love that game. So I had that as one of the talking points. Is kind of at that tail end of the white belt and transitioning through blue belt. What kind of things were coming together for you? Because <clears throat> as a fairly new white belt you're just learning all the techniques that are taught to you. You're just putting them all in your toolbox and and you'll figure it out later. And as you're getting to that blue belt level is when you should be starting to figure it out. And, uh, and so my question is kind of what kind of things were coming together for you at that point? Uh, Byron, do you remember back when you were getting ready for blue belt? And do you think there were certain things that were starting to click and what were they? Uh, Thinking back to when I was uh, at the top of my white belt time, it it was just so much different back then. It was literally, and it and it, I'm sure it's the same way at, at some gyms, but I haven't been to, to one of these gyms in a long time. It was go train, and and that's basically fighting on the ground with no punches. Like th- there wasn't a whole lot of uh, playful training. There wasn't a whole lot of cooperative training. It was uh, hey, let's roll. I'm gonna try my best to submit you the entire time. And, and dominate the situation, and you will too. And if I was rolling with somebody who's better than me, I remember rolling with guys who were who were just better than me, and I would never get a dominant position on them. I would never escape a a bad position on them. It would go. Uh, I start my guard. They pass the guard. They get the side control. They get to mount. They submit me over and over again. And as far as what my <laughs> like, still the same all through. That was white belt. All in, and into into blue belt, the idea of giving somebody something to work with, or or maybe you know letting them recover a position if they do it properly, or something like that, that just wasn't being done. And it, I'm sure there's gyms that still do that, but I don't think it's a good way to train and learn jujitsu. Byron, so as a follow up to that, how? Um, because that's not the way our gym is at all. Yeah, you know I would, I mean? but I would it's, say back in 2002, a lot mm-hmm. of gyms were that way. That was the more sure. commonplace. Sure, but what kept you coming back? Like, how how did I that? Know. <laughs> you know, we're not that smart. It was we're it nuts. was fun, and I remember fairly early on. I think maybe it was just like three months. Uh, a judo black belt came in, and he. Uh, I had a t- we were doing nogi, which I was happy for because he wouldn't throw me, and he he didn't train <laughs> with us. He just he just stopped by to try to beat up some Brazilian jiu-jitsu guys. And he almost choked me unconscious with my T-shirt, and I got out of it, and I armbarred him, and I was like really happy about that. I'm like, like I felt like jujitsu works, and this yeah, guy's been all. training judo for I don't know how long. He had a black belt. He was uh, a lot more experienced than me, but my armbar worked, and I think that that was a big boost as far as like sure I amongst my peers I'm pretty bad, but amongst other people and some other martial arts. 
I could hold my own. And, and I really felt that that was a good, good moment for me because it was kind of like a just sink or swim type of environment, which I think a lot of people come in and they don't come back. That's, that's how that business model works. <laughs> yeah. 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 Phil, yeah. Doesn't yeah. Work. Phil, we you asked what, keep, what keeps people coming back in that model. The truth is a lot of people didn't keep coming back. And I think as we've seen the way that we train evolve a little bit, I think that's part of why jujitsu has exploded in the last 10 years. And 100%. I love the, I love the quote that, um, when you guys had Rafael Lovato senior on and he said, train 50% for you and 50% for your partner. I remember I that. that quote all the time. And it was, it was unbelievably, unbelievably impactful in my training and helps guide me in what I do, um, in the future and, and, and knowing, bringing those, um, you know, people who are coming up through the ranks, um, that, that maybe are, are less experienced than me really showing me how to train with them. Yeah. Our professor, uh, John Plyler always talks about, um, the importance of building good training partners and like making them into your best training partners is the guy you, most times that you don't expect or whatever. Um, and I, I think that applies to that situation really well. Yeah. You know, uh, Phil, I've always said that you're never the same person, two days in a row, every day you mm-hmm. wake up, you're a little better at something, or you, maybe you took a step backwards. I, I like what you just said. You're either building your training partners or you're breaking them down. After each role, after each class, everybody's either a little better or they're a little bit more broken down. So I think that's a great way to look at it. You're, you're building training partners for your future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and going back to the training, um, the other thing that he, I like that he does a lot is is so much positional sparring and that like going back to what you said, uh, Byron, about how if your game was mount, you never would have got to work it. So the positional stuff that gives you the opportunity to figure out those positions that you wouldn't normally be in, especially when you're starting out. Uh, that's what made me really like, you know, the back. Not that I was taking anybody's back, but it's it gave me a goal. It's definitely something to work towards. And the positional gave me that experience. And without it, I, I would have no idea. Yeah, that's awesome. That, and and positional sparring is no no secret, you know. Like, but back in the day, and I'm sure Joe could attest to this as well. We didn't do that. It was if if you wanted a position, go get it. And and we could. So there was there was techniques, there was drills. So I you know I I get guard, I work on my armbar drill. You let me you give me nothing. And then there was rolling. That were the the modes that of learning and the idea of positional sparring. I, I don't recall anybody doing that um, early on in jujitsu, and there wasn't a good communication system. You know, we we're watching VHS tapes and looking at books as well. So <laughs> <laughs> it's so much different than today. You know, we've got the BJJ Fanatics uh, account and have you know tons of those instructionals that we've got at our fingertips at any time, and you can go on YouTube or anything and find a, a you know content on how to get out of this, you know, or that it's incredible. The amount of information that's out there on jujitsu today. And I'm, I'm thankful for it actually. Yeah, absolutely. If you, if you would have gone on online, because it was around in 2005 when I started for, um, I remember going online and you could get these like where they'd have four or five pictures, like the first picture, the guy's in closed guard. He kind of explains that. Then he sits up like in the hip bump position, explains that. And then he gets his grips for the Kimura and explains that. So there was a little bit around, but like when YouTube first came out, their algorithms, they wouldn't recognize butterfly guard. You type that in, they wouldn't have a clue. But today you go on YouTube and you type in butterfly guard and there's 50 
videos pop up and a lot of them will be high quality instructionals. Yeah, for sure. And Joe, I want to ask you kind of a follow-up question to your, um, your short stint at white belt, 2004 to 2012. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so what, what contributed to that? I mean, you know, obviously it, it had to, with your job, uh, uh, being a seaman, that's gotta be, uh, tough to have consistency. Right. Um, right. but, but what, what kind of, what was your journey like that, that eight years as a white belt, you know? Well, so th there was a long break where there was almost nothing. I trained for about a year and a half and then I moved. And when I moved, I took a job that was, I was 28 days on a boat and 14 days at home. And back in those days, it was just harder to find schools and harder to find schools that would work with unusual situations like that. So I just couldn't find any place to train. And it was about 2010. I got, uh, a job where I was working in Brazil and that's where I started training again. And even then it was, I'd be in Brazil for a couple of months and train and then home for a month and not train. So it was a long, but by then the internet was, was uh, pretty well populated with jujitsu uh, material. So that helped a lot, but yeah, that's what it was a, a little bit of a break and then some off and on training. That's gotta be really tough to develop a game with kind of that off and on. Right. I mean, what was your game like? Is that three or four stripe white belt? Well, like I said, I was mostly closed guard. And right before this is kind of funny, right before I got my blue belt, um, the Internet was starting to, to get popular with jujitsu material. And I came across some half guard stuff and actually from a source that today is considered to be not too reputable. But back in those days, I didn't know nothing. And it, and it helped. And because my training partners, they, they just opened up a gym in town. This is when I started being able to train when I was home. My training partners didn't have access to this or didn't know where to find it. So I was the only guy in the gym playing half guard. So I had a brief period of time where I felt like a superhero, but that didn't last very long. <laughs> <laughs> they all, they all uh, got used to that quickly. huh? <laughs> yeah. So, um, Th thinking back on this, and we've all talked about our own journeys and stuff, but if, if we were advising guys that are two, three, four stripes, white belts now, what are kind of some crucial things that they, they need to know or that they need to be doing? Um, I, I would say one of the things that they need to be doing is is not ha having big gaps or holes in their game. We talk about it on the podcast a lot that everybody should have a couple, maybe two, three moves from each position. So in my mind, that's one of the big things. What do you guys think if somebody's three, four stripe white belt and they're trying to go over the hump, what are some things they need to be focusing on? I think the, the most important thing that I've gotten, um, from talking to a lot of different black belts and people who are a lot smarter than me is it always comes back to consistency, whatever your training schedule is, whatever you can do consistently over a long stretch, that's that's what you should do. Um, just every time I hear a different, really smart black belt talk, they always say the same thing. It's the fundamentals, and it's showing up and practicing those consistently. Perfect. Yeah, and and I'll add to that is that um, you know at, at three or four stripes on your white belt, you're going to notice that your upper belts are going to roll with you. They may roll with you a little differently you're going to notice that your professor is going to roll with you and he may roll with you differently. What I would say is they're going to give you opportunities in those, uh, 
in, in those roles, uh, or at least that's what I experienced. And um, they want to see you go for those things. Like, you know, for example, if you're in, if they've given you mount, they're also going to give you something else. So if they stick that left arm out there, go for the, the go for the Americana, you know, go for it. Don't think it's a trick. It, that That's one of the things it's like, go for it and see what happens. Um, and you know, Byron, this is a plug for, for yours, the, the Nike method, just do it. I mean, that's what you should be doing as a three or four stripe white belt is not worrying about the consequences of what you're, what you're trying, but just to try it because you're in a safe training environment. Yeah, that's yeah, awesome. It, and that's the environment that I, that I didn't have when I was starting off. It was, if I went for this, it was arm lock from Mount and didn't get it. I wasn't going to see Mount again for the next three rolls. <laughs> like this is my one chance to try this. Don't screw it up. And it, that's not at all the way uh, most people roll these days. Like I, I, I am rolling also to have fun. And if as a black belt, I'm smashing a white belt or a blue belt or purple and, and just like totally controlling and, and enforcing my game on this uh, roll that's really not that fun. I, I, I want to have some give and take and sure. Like I'm, I, I want to see your best game as well. Like I want to, I want to wade right into that and see, okay, let's see. So your, your, your favorite part is your half guard sleeps Let's. I want to be in your half guard. I want to see what you're going to do and, and see, see what you have for me there. Because I know as a blue belt, if your best part is your half guard game, that might be closer to purple belt game. And I, and I want to see how that's doing. Yeah, and another thing I uh, I've said before, kind of just realized myself, it's not the best strategic advice, probably, but just like go try to do the moves that you think are fun, like the That's positions good. you think are fun. <laughs> that um, is really good. Cause, yeah, because uh, our professor John said at one point, uh, he said you don't have to like look for the move that fits you or fits your body type. That move is going to find you, and you're going to find yourself trying to do it, and that's how you get good at it is by practicing those moves so even even if it's not like in theory the best like i love pressure passing at 150 pounds you know it doesn't always make the most sense but it's it's what i like to try to do and i'm just going to keep beating my head into the wall until i figure it out so you know that's just that's how i keep coming back is is i just think it's fun so and at 210 pounds i'm an outside passer so go figure well i i know one thing i've got a lot of training partners that are in that 150, 160, 70 range. And uh, they seem to be able to defy the laws of physics. You know, pr- <laughs> pressure passing is is as much about technique as it is about the actual force or weight or whatever. So go for it, Phil. You're going to be a, you're going to be a great pressure passer one of these days. One of these days. Yeah, I'm <laughs> sure you're, you're well on your way already. So. If he gets that head and the hip on that over underpass, you're in, a, in for a bad time. There you go. Yeah, you st- you stack a guy enough, and it doesn't take much <laughs> weight to make that pressure unbearable. Yep. Hey guys, when you got your blue belts, uh, tell me a little bit about it. I'll I'll, I'll start so that you guys have a uh, time to think about it. Um, I got my blue belt. I was training at a school here in Texas that was not doing very well, and so I contacted the guy that I trained with in. Brazil, my professor down there, Luis Paulo, and asked him if there's any way, any ideas he had to help us out. 
And he said, I'll come up to a seminar. And then I think I got a black belt that would like to come up there and, and help you run the school. So, um, so he came up and did the seminar and he told me, uh, or he contacted me about eight weeks before he came and said, uh, um, how would you like your name? Do you want your full name? What do you want on your blue belt certificate? <laughs> I was like, Oh shit. <laughs> so, so you want to talk about the pressure being on, you know, I, I trained with him for over a year in Brazil and, and kept in touch with him. So he knew where I was at and he knew I was, I was ready, but man, I didn't think I was ready. Um, so, so anyway, man, I worked my ass off and he came up and, and we did the, uh, um, promotion and at that time it was pretty common we did a, a gauntlet and we did a gauntlet that when i got my purple belt but under current management my school doesn't do it anymore uh what was you guys's promotion day like did you do the gauntlet how do you feel about it um so yeah so my my promotion uh it was actually like on a tuesday night you know it was a tuesday night class it wasn't a seminar or anything and, uh, it was me and, and one of my good training partners, uh, Mark Yelton, and we both got promoted to uh, blue belt on the same night. And, um, Phil wasn't there and I'll still never forgive him for that. Um, <laughs> I had no idea. It was a complete shock to me. I was a three stripe white belt when I got promoted. So I really, I, I had, I had no, I had no, um, a reason to believe I'd be promoted that night and had no idea like you had that forewarning of eight weeks that, that you were getting your blue belt. You know, I looking back on it, when I kind of look back on it, I look back on rolling with, um, with our professor and, and the upper belts and, and kind of the change in the tone of the role. Right. And that's kind of what I noticed going into it. And, um, and so after that we did, I did, uh, do a gauntlet. There was, it was a Tuesday night class. So there was like 25 people there. Um, and being, uh, the imbecile that I am, I took my shirt off and uh, did it the old fashioned way. Me and Mark both did and, um, and, uh, did it. And, and I view it as a rite of passage. And I also view it as if people don't agree with the gauntlet, I don't think anyone makes you do the gauntlet. And so I, I had no problem with doing it myself and I'll have no problem doing it again and again. Um, but I do understand if people have objections to it and, and, um, but I did feel like it was a rite of passage for me. Yeah, I got my, uh, mine at, it was a promotion seminar and I wasn't necessarily a hundred percent sure, but I had a feeling cause it was just. You know, I had been at Four Stripes for a while, and it just seemed to make sense because it was a promotion seminar. But uh, going back a couple months earlier, um, this story kind of sort of relates, but me and a, one of my best training partners now actually started on the same exact day, which I thought was funny looking back on. Um, but there was a promotion seminar earlier, probably three months before the one I got my blue belt, and uh, he got promoted to blue belt, and I didn't. And at the time, for a couple days, I was kind of – bummed out or upset about it um and it's funny looking back now like it's what do those three months even mean basically but uh you know i was kind of bummed out for a couple days um but then like you kind of just go right back to class and it you know doesn't really have any effect like when we train the same stuff happens with the same people and it was the same way after i actually got the blue belt of i train and the same stuff is happening you know i'm doing what doing well with some people and not doing so good with most. So didn't really change anything, but 
I'm kind of happy I got that uh, belt kind of expectations disappointment thing. Kind of got that out of the way. And also behind that too, you know, there's there's all kinds of um, things you can doubt and have imposter syndrome with the with moving to blue belt. But you know, the biggest thing, the biggest thing that um, that helped me is that something that you guys said, and that is trust your professor on the promotions. There's reasons for things. You know, Phil was a very active competitor and, um, you know, to get those, to get those couple extra competitions at that higher level of white belt to show, show him where he was at in that spectrum. I thought, thought was, was ingenious, uh, on his part for, for allowing that and, and, and making that happen. And, um, you know, again, I never had that imposter syndrome because I always trusted our professor. And and part of that was from your guys' Black Boat Belt episode. I don't know if you remember, uh, Byron, whenever you asked the questions, did you ever uh, regret promoting a blue belt to all those black belts on the show? Yeah. It was a great show. And, and um, no one in that entire in that entire spectrum of black belts, great black belts that you guys interviewed said that they'd ever regretted promoting someone to blue belt. So, you know, the belts are what they are. I'm not, I'm not concerned about them, but I'm I also, I also give the respect to my, my um, coach in that I trust his judgment. And if he says I'm a blue belt, I'm a blue belt. Yeah, that's awesome. It's sometimes harder to, to realize that it's easy to say somebody else, yeah, he got his blue belt or she got hers. Coach says so. That makes sense. But when it's it's you, sometimes it feels different because you, like deep down, you know, man, I got some problems with my game. <laughs> so that's that's good. Just I mean, you are trusting the judgment of your coach. And when I got my blue belt, it so I I trained with a bunch of white belts, some of which had been training for five years or around that range, and then one purple belt. That was my uh, that was the room. And so, I, I mean, the problem with us talking about uh, so 2002 jiu-jitsu is that's pretty rare. I mean, you have to go to a pretty small town uh, to find a room with one colored belt teaching a bunch of white belts, typically. Like, that's most of the time there's there's just better situations to train in. But that's the, that's what there was. That was the only gym in town in, in Wichita, and, and that's that's where I trained. And I met my first, I think the first black belt I ever met was Alan Hopkins. And that was maybe at mm-hmm. the, the one year mark. And then I, then around two years in, uh, Eric Williams, he's a black belt from Houston, uh, Texas, uh, elite MMA, I think is his gym name. I tried to interview him. Haven't got him yet. <laughs> he just doesn't yeah, respond. He does a lot of stuff. He does a lot of stuff with MMA. Yeah. Uh, because one of our buddies that were on was on our show, Andrew Faraday, he does the fight game series and he interviewed him for that. So yeah, he's really, really good. Yeah. I, I really, he was a really neat person and I would love to interview him. I just don't, have a, I just need to call the gym, I think. <laughs> I'm not the most aggressive guy that seeks interviews. If I send you a message on Facebook, you don't answer. I send you an email, you don't answer. I'd leave people alone. <laughs> but uh, So he came, and it was, I think he taught it. I could be mixing this up a little bit, but I think he taught a seminar, and then I think we did a belt test. And the, the test had basically two parts. He, he, show, he said, show me your guard sweeps. Show me your mount attacks. And uh, like he just kind of, we kind of went through things because he did not know me. 
my purple instructor knew me and recommended me for a belt, but he, he walked into town a day or two ago and, and was trying to figure out where I was on this scale of, of, you know, blue belt or white belt. And then, so we, we showed a bunch of techniques and then he paired us up with as close as he could. He put the two guys that were always smashing me together and had them roll. He goes, you guys roll, roll hard. He goes, if I feel like you're, you're not rolling hard and you're letting each other do techniques, I'm not going to like it. And so they went after it. And then he paired me up with Gary and said, same thing, roll hard. I want to see what you can do. And we tried so hard to to submit each other and just murder. It, it was, I'm sure it looked terrible, but <laughs> the effort was there. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, two white belts trying to kill each other. And at the end of the day, I didn't know how it went. And he, he lined us all up. There's only like seven of us probably. Uh, and, and he started talking to each one of us individually. And I remember when he got to me, he told, so I'm sitting there with my white belt on and he told me, you got some serious problems with your game. Oh, <laughs> oh man. <laughs> he, he says, he, he comment. I remember when he, when I did my technique portion, I did the arm bar, which was my, my top two technique arm bar, then triangle. And the problem with my arm bar, my hips were so low to the ground that they would pull their elbow out, which led to my triangle. But it was a terrible arm bar. I didn't realize that. I would throw my leg over and hip into as hard as I could. Uh, he, so he he said, uh, during the technique portion, he told me stop doing the arm bar. That's not that's not right. I'm like, man, that's my best thing. <laughs> so he told me you have some you have some serious holes or problems with your game. My my arm bar wasn't any good, and my half guard. I don't know what I was doing in half guard. It was really just. <laughs> it, 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 that, that half guard in 2000 and uh, four-ish time range, um, I think it was uh, not really, we really didn't understand the underhook, which is a major part of a half guard. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which seems ridiculous, but that's just no video, no, no, I don't know if you can go back and find a a book back in that time that talked about half guard and underhooks. Like it, I I didn't understand it. I would try half my half guard was literally you're halfway to passing my guard. That's half, that was it's it. Ha, it's half mount. Yeah. <laughs> back, back back in those days, if I tried to play half guard, I was just half mounted. <laughs> so he 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 told me all that stuff. I'm like, well, I ain't getting my blue belt. And then he handed me my blue belt <laughs> and told and told my coach work with him on on these things. And that was I had a little bit of that. Uh, you know, like I didn't I didn't feel good about it, but. You know, you you put the belt on, and you and the and back in the day, you just fight extra hard. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So, so guys, we we've touched a little bit on the imposter syndrome. Uh, we're past where we've got our blue belts. Uh, any of y'all deal with the blue belt blues? I know Phil, Jeff, you guys are still in your blue belt journey. Uh, Byron, how about you? Did you have the blue belt blues at any point? I can't remember that. I think the blue belt blues hit. <laughs> A, a from my memory is not that good. It's been a little a couple of years, but I think the blue belt blues typically hits almost immediately. It feels like you crossed the finish line and you've accomplished something, and then and then you go back to roll, and all the good white belts are still good white belts, and you're not necessarily a good blue belt yet, you know. And all the blue belts are yeah. basically rolling like you were when you're white belt. They're a little bit better. It's just kind of it could be a, a little bit of a demotivating thing. So if it, if you can get first get past first those few months of training and just accept kind of what's going on in your jujitsu, 
that's the, I think that's kind of where the blues hit. They don't hit to, that I've noticed, you know, mid to late blue belt. I think it happens pretty early on. You know, yeah, that, that was, that's go, go ahead, Phil. That was my pretty much experience. Uh, exactly. Uh, I wouldn't say I had the blues where I was considering quitting at any point and I was still going very consistently, but it was definitely frustrating for a while right after I got my blue belt and the, and the fact that I kind of came to the realization I couldn't get on top at any point. Like I couldn't sweep, I couldn't take people down and, and new people, if they came in and had like 50, 60 pounds on me, it was, you know, it was super tough, even if they don't really know what they're doing, just dealing with somebody that big. Um, so that definitely got frustrating for a while, but man, grinding through it really is, is worth it. Um, if you can kind of get through that and then kind of get back to having fun. And once you figure some, a couple of things out, it really, really fixes, uh, those blues. Yeah. And whenever, whenever I was going through that period of, of just being promoted, you know, a lot of people feel like there's a target on their back and everything like that. I never felt that way. I mean, I, um, my experience has always been, um, really positive. Um, you know, may, maybe it's the difference in size. I never had that. Um, you know, I never had that fear of a, a, a wrestler that was a big guy, some, someone like myself coming in and, and, um, being really tough to deal with. And, um, so I, I stayed consistent, but I know, I know it's a real thing. I mean, I talked to, to some good buddies of mine about this before we, we, uh, we were going to do this podcast and they just, they said, you know, that a, you know, that, the that the upper belts would really turn it up on them after they got their blue belt, which you know what they, they should, they should turn it up a little bit and make sure that they're getting that, um, getting that blue belt experience. I mean, you know, part of, part of being a, a kind of, well, my impression of part of being early on in your blue belt is that you have to get smashed some, because guess what? As a white belt, it's still acceptable to tap to pressure, right? I mean, nobody debates that, but as a blue belt, it's not acceptable. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Don't get me started on that one. <laughs> no, no, I can I mean, debate you well, on that. I mean, What's that? I, I, I said, don't get me started on, on pressure. I debate my coach on pressure all the time. Do you really? Is your, yeah. Is your coach Jake Fox? Yes. <laughs> yeah. That guy knows how to put pressure on Jeff. Just, just trust. <laughs> no, me. no, no. I get that. I, I get that. But you, I, and I'm talking to Byron. I'm talking in a in a general sense. You know, blue belt to blue belt, or yeah. Uh, you know, not somebody who. I mean. I get it. Those, those people who, you know, they, they get the finger in the armpit, they pull you, you know, kind of roll you up and pull you into them. And it's like, yeah, this is terrible. Um, and, and, and you don't want to be there, but, but in, in general, in general, you, 90% of the time, you're not going to tap the pressure, right? I mean, it might happen occasionally here and there, but, but I feel like you have to know what that pressure is even early on in your blue belt cycle, right? You've got, you've got to feel what that, that means. And, um, otherwise, otherwise you're not getting that full experience. And I'm not saying for doing it the whole round or anything like that, but, but really, um, you know, you do the uh, upper belts, a, they have to ramp it up to, you know, kind of stay ahead of the curve and B to see where you're at. Yeah. I I remember the first time I felt, real pressure. I think I was a brown belt or maybe late purple belt. And I was running with Hanato Tavares who weighs maybe 145, maybe 150, very short, very, very strong, but not heavy. And he was smashing me from mount or side control. 
And I was confident that somebody was playing a joke on me and they were pushing on his back. Like, what is happening here? Like I had, I probably had 10 years on the mat and I was like, what is happening? Like, how is this guy doing this? But my, my quick pressure thing, cause my, my coach, Jake Fox, he does, he, he'll, he loves tapping people to pressure. And I tell him it's not a real submission. Uh, yeah. Full, full disclosure right. here. Full disclosure, <laughs> Phil, Jeff, Jake Fox tapped me about a month ago due to pressure, exhaustion, and suffocation. <laughs> and I swear to you, I was trying to offer him submissions along the way. Take it for God's sake. <laughs> that predator meme where he says, just kill me. <laughs> my, my thing with the, with the pressure is, and I argue pressure is not a real submission, is that um, is, is I, would, I would turn around and say, could this person – tap you to pressure and he would say no well could they tap you with a renegade choke he would say yes then then it's so much attribute dependent or skill dependent and and i don't care who, like i'm a black belt braulio steam is going to tap me to pressure he, like if that's what he wants to do it's gonna work and and there's a bunch of black belts or brown belts and purple belts that don't have names that that you would recognize that could tap me to pressure i willingly tapped that like i don't want to get injured doing jujitsu so if pressure's the, the the thing that's going to injure me, my ribs getting broke or damaged, um, I try not to pa- so and I don't tap a lot the pressure. I can't remember last time I actually did, but uh, I try not to tap from panic, which is different than pressure. But uh, that's that's probably a much better way to say it. Yeah, I but I don't I don't I try to get to Jake. It's not a fun training environment to take a take a, a blue belt and tap that person to pressure. That was a sucky role for that blue belt. And Jake just he, he just enjoys it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we got to throw out here that Jake runs one of the best gyms around. <laughs> He's an all around nice yeah, guy. Yeah, he, he's a super nice guy. <laughs> and, and but I, I yeah, I don't uh, let him get access to my ribs very easily. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the half guard is half mounted when you're rolling with a guy like Jake. It's just a miserable position to be in. I bet. So I don't even know what I, I derailed it with the pressure thing, but well, <laughs> I go, say if you want to tap to restart, do it. And if and if somebody is consistently just smashing you and it's it's a miserable role, that reminds me of back when I was a white belt. Like maybe you should roll with a better training partner and 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 work on you know your frames and work on getting your hips away a little bit, and then come back to them later on if you had some time to figure out how to deal with it. Because just being stuck with pressure, it's pretty miserable. And I yeah. think you hit, hit well, we, the nail we, on the head too, uh, Byron, with the panic, tapping to panic. And also just noting whenever they have that pressure, say that they're in side control, they have that that uh, that hand under the, the armpit and they've got you pulled in and your chin's to the side and it has that bad pressure. If, if you're doing the right things, you know, pull – you know, putting your arm up, pulling the shoulder down to get your, just get a little bit of space. Then they ease up, but you know, they want to know that you, you're, you know, the proper ways to kind of inch forward and get out of those uh, tough situations. Yeah. That's, that's coach doing that. So my wife has had some negative roles with pressure. So she's got a really good guillotine and a really skinny arm, (laughs) like her forearm. And (laughs) she'll, she'll roll with, she'll see a guy, 190 pounds, fairly new, you know, two or three months, she will guillotine him almost immediately. And, and then it's on because he didn't want to do that again. And then, so she's had several roles where it's the guy gets her on the ground after being guillotined and tapped right away. And then 
just pressures her for the remaining time. And she refuses to tap, but she hates jujitsu during those rolls. I'm like, just tap and restart or tap and be done. Like, she won't do it. She's too stubborn. But it's just, there's a place for pressure, and it's not with somebody who is struggling to figure out what's happening in their jujitsu. <laughs> yeah, right. agreed. It's especially, uh, I've been in this situation a couple of times where it's, you're rolling with somebody who's much, much larger, and they don't really do anything, but you can't get out. And it's kind of just a trapped yeah. role. It's just not very fun. Let's yep. do jujitsu here, guys. Let's not uh, just lay on me and smash me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not very very fun and it's not very productive either. Uh, this is kind of an oddball topic, but uh, we're talking about transitioning through the ranks. Uh, guys, how important is it to compete? I don't know if you guys think it's necessary, if you encourage it. I've always kind of felt that it's a good idea to compete at at least – at least once at each belt rank. And I haven't competed yet at purple, so maybe that's why I'm stagnating. But how do you guys feel about that? I personally love uh, competing. Like our school is not a big uh, competition school, but they definitely support you if you want to do it. Um, that's a big motivating factor for me in, in getting better and pushing myself uh, is competition. I think everybody – I personally think everybody should do it at least once, no matter when you do it, just because that – is such a different uh, experience of jujitsu, and no matter how hard you train, like nobody's coming at you the same way that they will in a competition. Uh, even if you're only doing it for self-defense purposes, you know nobody in class is going to grab you that same way, and it gives you that adrenaline dump, and you will get a, just a different look at how your jujitsu is under stress because that's when it matters most, um, in my opinion. So I think I find it personally very important um i don't think people need to do it all the time necessarily but i i just really think it would be good for everybody to at least try it to see what it is like yeah i, th I think your points about the adrenaline jump and how your jujitsu performs under pressure under pressure are key uh jeff what do you think uh yeah I, i'm along the same line of thinking as you joe so i i agree you should uh, compete every belt level I have. Um, I'm going to continue to Phil and I are actually doing master worlds this year if they have it. Um, um, but I think it's just an important part of development because inevitably, you know, the great thing is you're playing your a game in competition. I, in the gym until I'm in competition class, I'm very rarely playing my a game, you know, uh, you know, I, I play off my back. I play um, an open guard style, half guard style um, sweeping game. And in competition, I, I strictly stick with my wrestling takedown, top control pass submission. That's that's my that's my game plan the whole time, which is nothing like I play in the in the regular class in jujitsu. Um, so, you know, I think, I think that you, you can learn from where there's holes in your a game and to see, you know, how developed your, your B and C game really is. So I think it teaches you a lot and gives you, gives you things to work on. Um, if nothing else. Yeah. Good stuff, guys. Uh, I like Phil talking about, uh, adrenaline and that sort of thing. I, I think there's definitely something to be said for that. I say go compete. If it's something that's in interesting to you, go do it. If if you, you're thinking you'd rather not, that's fine. If you're interested in it but nervous, I like doing stuff that makes me nervous. <laughs> that's kind of that's a fun thing to do if something makes you a little nervous. 
but uh, learning how to control, like if I roll with any blue belt in my gym or white belt or anybody in my gym, none of them are nervous that I'm going to hurt them. None. I hope not. None of none of them are having an yeah. adrenaline rush. We're we're just mm-hmm. doing some jujitsu. We're just rolling. We're having uh, a good time. Sure, we might be working pretty hard, but they know that their safety is one of the most important things that we're that's on that's going on right now. Uh, if they don't understand that, I need to a verbal conversation, not just rolling, needs to happen. But like, if I feel that they don't care about my safety, we talk about that too. But they shouldn't be panicking. But when you compete. You you match up with somebody who you don't know. They don't know you. You're not going to see them again tomorrow. They're not on your team. I mean, we're all on the same jujitsu team, but they're not. They're mm. not. A lot of those guys don't. Gals don't care about you. <laughs> like they're here to win. And and whatever you're going to present to them, they're going to try to solve that and, and tap you out. And your safety is far from the the most important thing on on their minds. So you even if you just go to compete to see what it's like, you still will get some sort of a drilling rush. And I haven't competed for quite a while, but uh, I did enjoy doing it back in the day. And I think I did grow quite a bit. Um, but I don't really have a huge desire to compete. My, I might, when I, <laughs> when I retire from my job job, I, I might uh, pick that up again, but um, I have to have my, all my limbs working for my job. So, I uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. It, it, it's just not the. It's also not the most interesting thing um, for me. I I just really enjoy training and getting better at jujitsu. And you know, sorry, Byron, go ahead. You no, know, you're good. Yeah, that's just that's where I'm at right now with my jujitsu. Is just to get better and enjoy the process. Okay, I I was going to say I think that something everybody touched on was the difference in intensity between training rounds and competition rounds and. I remember my first uh, competition in 2005. I got my arm hyperextended in a belly down arm bar pretty good my mm. first or second round. And, and I remember that was the thing is I knew I was I knew I was getting submitted and I just couldn't get to the tap quick enough. And things just happened so much quicker and so much more ferociously in a competition round. And I think if nothing else, just to kind of be reminded of that. Uh, is a good reason for competition. This is completely off the subject, but I also feel that a little bit of MMA training is really good for jiu-jitsu players to be reminded that if you get in a conflict, if you get in an altercation on the street, the other guy's going to throw punches. So how well is your jiu-jitsu going to throw up, hold up through punches? But um, yeah, I think it's important to realize that in a, in a fight, things are going to happen quicker and more violently than they ever will on a training mat. And Joe, totally agree with you. We we actually have a, a Friday class that deals with the striking with jiu-jitsu so that you're aware of that positional awareness and where you're at um, in those situations. It's a great class, super fun. You know, the, the strikes, we we don't actually hit each other in the face or anything like that. But but we wear gloves and, and give little love taps and, and that sort of thing. I think that's a big part of, of making sure that your jiu-jitsu holds up in a self-defense situation. And the yep. second thing is, when are you going to commit to a competition? Because it sounds like that you've already decided you, your jujitsu is getting a little bit stagnant right now. <laughs> it would be great for you to do that. So the best way to do that is to commit to a date for the competition. 
Jeff, we didn't invite you all on this show to hold me accountable <laughs> for my jiu-jitsu. <laughs> Joe, just say this week. This week. Yeah, this week. If there's a competition in Houston this week, I'm going to be on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, I really appreciate that. We're joking around. We're in the middle of COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Nobody's training or doing competitions. But, uh, Jeff, that is on my radar. I need to get a competition scheduled. Um so, <laughs> but that's not why. And we, yeah, two, you, you know, <laughs> I know, but I do want to say this because we do. I mean, I do feel strongly about competition, and this is, you know, anytime that a, a white belt walks up and says, "Hey, when is it time to do competition?" I was like, "Now you're thinking about competition, so now it's time to do it." I agree. The the one thing with with that is sometimes they put so much pressure on themselves when they're still so new at jujitsu and they go out there and they have a tough time on the, on the competition mats. And that was the last you see them. That's always disappointing when you lose a teammate, blue belt blues, or maybe uh, competition disappointment that knocks out people too, uh, from training long-term and training three months. I want to compete. That's cool. Go do, yeah. go do the competition, but just know that, we still have a lot more work to do on you and, and you're going to improve a lot more. So whatever happens out there, you know, best of luck and, and fight super hard, but we're going to be back here Monday morning or Monday evening, whenever you train and, uh, and get, and get to work on what we found out. Yeah. So, feel- so, something key there, Byron is, is really trusting your coach. I remember my first, my actual first class I went to and we did the warm ups, and then they had some, open training and back then it was more than just open roll but um i wanted to do it and my coach said uh i'm not going to throw you to the wolves man come to a few more classes first and, and so that's what i did and it progressed fine and and i think a good coach is going to tell you the same thing when it comes to competition so a lot of people might ask us on our podcasts when should i compete but your coach is really the right person to ask for that job. And hopefully if you've got a big flaw in your game or there's something that's going to put you in a dangerous spot, if you compete, he's going to tell you to wait till the next competition. And, uh, your coach is a great resource for that. Yeah. I felt super lucky because I, I had, you know, the coach that I have. And when he told me, if you're thinking about doing it, you should, he recommends doing it earlier Yeah, because it's that exp- the competition experience. You got to get that out of the way. And I, I was the guy who went in, Pretty much three months after rolling, I wanted to do a competition. I went in with zero expectations of winning because I was pretty realistic with myself that, you know, I don't have any takedowns, any sweeps, I don't, you know, but I need to do this to get it out of the way. And man, that first competition was a mess. So I was really happy I got it out of the way because then they were rapidly improving after that because I had quite the ugly performance the first time out. But um, yeah, it's a bummer to hear people do bad in competition and give up. I, I feel like every time I've lost a competition, it has been so beneficial for me going forward to to you know i got choked with a loop choke in one of my last competitions and that has brought a lot of awareness to my head position that i've made fun of having my head down for a long time but you know really brings it to the forefront what something you've been ignoring when you lose in a competition like that with you know a couple friends watching or whatever and on video and then you got to go back and watch it it's just losing's been a big beneficial thing for me hashtag rhino guard um but the uh (laughs) the the big part of of that is losing in competition. That's whenever your teammates pick you up, you know, I don't, there's never been a time when somebody lost, you know, even Phil, I was there for Phil's first competition. He lost and, you know, 
in spectacular fashion. And, uh, and, and I was, you know, I just told him I was proud of him. He got out there and competed, you know, just giving that support to those people that are doing that competition is so important. It makes you grow as a, as a teammate as well. That's awesome. I think that's something that your coach realizes it happens a lot when, when the competition doesn't go well is that Phil doesn't walk off and sit on the bleachers for an hour and then go home never to be seen again. He's going to get some conversations about, Hey, I'm proud of you. I know you're disappointed in your performance, but uh, I'm proud of you stepping up here and doing this and we'll see you on the mats, you know, the next time we train. Um, that that's some, that's something to be said about the team you guys have there. Yeah, I think so too. And, you know, everyone, we've said it before, everyone asks, um, you know, whenever you say you did a competition, first off, nobody really cares, but you, how you did in the competition, That's true. you know? And so they ask and, you know, whatever the answer is, like, you know, what if it's, I lost every match. They're like, Oh, cool. Great. And then if, if it's, well, I won every match and I dominated. Oh, cool. Great. Let's move on to the next topic. Yeah. Yeah. I lost fast enough to not even get sweaty. Okay. That happens. Like that's a lot of people's first match is, is yeah. jujitsu happens. It could be 10 seconds of jujitsu. It could be three months of training, 10 seconds. It's over, man. I suck at this. What else can I maybe not, not maybe what can I also do my time other than, th- than this? That's, <laughs> but having good support was, network there is very important. We go out in 10 seconds. That was my biggest fear competing was losing in like 10 seconds, you know, and then it happened and I was like, oh, that's not so bad. Got that out of the way. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, awesome. it's, I mean, it, it, it's and the hard thing to realize with jujitsu competition, especially when you're when you're maybe especially when you're new, maybe not. But there's a lot of it you can't control. If your first competition, you get matched up with the person who was almost a blue belt or wrestled their whole life or whatever, you're going to lose that match. <laughs> like, there's yeah. go out there and do your best, but there's almost nothing you could go out. All you can control is, is your effort and your game plan and like the size of your end of the table. The other side of the, of the, of the mat there is all out of your control. And if there's something that you're not prepared for or something that, that, that you can't, you don't match up well with, it's just, it's just going to be hard to do well. And it's just, it's just, it's hard for people to understand that, that sometimes the, the match is over well before. Like if somebody, beats you in a matter of seconds or like has if the match is in linear fashion as in it goes they take me down they pass my guard they get the side control Mm. they tap me with a choke that probably would have happened 10 out of 10 times (laughs) like uh now if now if i could go from side control to recover my guard and almost get a sweep like if it's kind of a more of a of a thing but if it's just a straight line right to their progression there's there's almost nothing i could have done to stop that Mm mm-hmm I don't know, maybe have a depressing view on competition. (laughs) (laughs) You control your effort. You control how hard you train coming up to it. You control your game plan. Those are all on you and and work with those. And whatever the results are, know that you did your best. You know, Byron, something I always try and tell new competitors um, is that 50% of everybody that competes in this tournament is going to lose in their first round. Mm Mm-hmm. And you look, t- take two things from that. One of them is don't feel bad if you lose. I mean, you, you went out there, you did your best, you trained hard, uh, you, you tried to implement your game plan, and you lost. That happened to half the people that 
entered the tournament. But the other thing I tell people is that means you've got as much business of winning this thing as anybody else does. Half the people are going to lose. Could be you, could be them. You just go out and do your best, and you're going to fall on whichever side you fall on. Yeah, I think that's great advice, Joe. So speaking of advice, guys, uh, we've been on here for an hour. It's been a great conversation. I thought we'd close with maybe some advice uh, for people going through this portion of their journey. And one thing I did is I put out a, a post on our private Facebook group page for our Patreon supporters, and I got some feedback, and I thought we'd go through a couple of these real quick. Uh, Jamie said uh, one thing that she experienced was it was difficult when other people didn't agree with her promotion. And she went on to talk about counting years on the mat versus counting hours on the mat. And I get the impression that she was one of these that came in and she spent, you know, four days a week on the mats. And after a year or two, someone spending four days on the weeks, uh, four days a week on the mat, as opposed to somebody spending two, I mean, that's twice as much time. So you're going to progress at different rates and I want to say that I've seen this happen before. I've seen people congratulate somebody on a promotion with like, wow, you got promoted in X amount of months. That's really unheard of. You know, that that's really unusual. But congratulations anyway. Like there's something suspect about your promotion. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that. But if somebody comes up to you and, and they feel like they're getting some pushback from other students or people don't agree with their promotion, what do you guys have to say about that? I think it goes back to trusting your professor. They know what they're doing. Um, and that's the great thing about them. The mats, you know, they don't lie. So oh, good if, point. You're, if your professor thinks that you deserve that promotion and you've been working for it, um, I wouldn't worry too much about what another student has to say. And I'd also add to that. I would say that it's, uh, if someone does bring that up, I'd be like, well, you know, that's kind of disrespectful to my coach, um, you know, and, and, and ask them, Hey, do you, do you trust their judgment? And if so, then drop the subject. Yep. Yeah. That's a good point. It's on the coach. It's not on me. They thought I was ready. Um, I would also turn this around and say to any white belts that are listening, there is a definite difference between hours on the mat and, days or or years on the mat so if you're looking to sort of turbocharge your training a little bit at a day a week i i I don't advocate burning yourself out i warn against that but man if you got a little bit of extra time you can add two hours a month is what's that 24 hours a year and that adds up year after year so and another thing to add to to that is something jeff and i have talked about and like jeff makes a a goal of his he's talked about it over and over again is there's a difference between the person who does five reps and there's a person uh and then the person who does 10 you know oh, so perfect using the hours the right way when you're there is also equally important yeah that's good i it's i can't uh, that's a weird thing because it's just kind of unfortunate that a teammate would say or would would look hey i'm better than you at this why did you get promoted uh I would I would tell the the person that's wondering that is that jujitsu and you guys I think have hit this perfectly. Um, coach made the call, not me. You know, like <laughs> what, what do you like? I don't. But this is jujitsu is it's a team sport, but the it's individual as well. 
we all have different bodies. We all have different abilities. We all have different focuses. We all have different off the mat lives <laughs> that drastically affect what we could train and, you know, how much we could train and, and, you know, we could be going through personal disasters as well. Like all these things happen. It, nobody's just who's the same. So, uh, Jeff as a blue belt or Phil as a blue belt or Joe as a blue belt, that's you as a blue belt. That's not, that's not me as a blue belt or a purple belt. Um, that's the individual. And if, um, like I'm not very flexible, um, <clears throat> That affected my performance at, any, at all my belt levels, and if if somebody um, is is having a problems with their game or whatever, like this, it's you as that belt level. So um, I think that the belts are awarded to the person, and you could be in theory with my with my thought, you could be a blue belt and really never uh, hang with much of the blue belts. You know, I, I think of uh, people that have a lot of things kind of. Uh, against set against them you know they could be uh, suffering from a physical disability or um, maybe, maybe like their work is so crazy that they they don't sleep much or i don't know what it is but this is you as a blue belt this is what your coach feels you are at the blue belt level for yourself it's not the same for everybody if you come in young athletic and you know uh, wrestling you, this doesn't mean you're gonna get your blue belt in six months that might mean that you as a blue belt as are you're going to be a really uh, good blue belt and you're going to have a, this type of game. It's just, I think it's just individual and there's no reason to have somebody <laughs> try their best. And like, I'm a slow learner too. Like I, the, the techniques I've learned and I like, I really learned them well and I really like them. But if, if it was more on show me a variety of techniques, I would not be a black belt. I don't have a large library of techniques to pull from. That's just not my. That's just not what I've done with my jujitsu. But if that's how I was being judged, I would be. That's not my style. I would be held back. I'd be a pupper belt or a brown belt still. Does that make sense at all? That you're. It's an individual belt. Although it's, yeah, it's okay. Good. <laughs> like Joe was saying earlier, are you better than you were yesterday? Yeah. And I would also offer this advice to Jamie, and that is. Yeah, um, wear that blue belt with pride. You know, if if she's got that imposter syndrome, which many people do, just get over it and know that your coach says this is the right thing, and and wear that blue belt with pride and and just move forward and keep training. I, I agree, I, I agree, Jeff. If it's imposter syndrome, then you'll get over that. Trust your coach, and, and if there really are teammates who are questioning your promotion, that probably reflects more on how they feel about their own jujitsu, like Byron was talking about, about insecurities and, and that kind of stuff. So, uh, Jamie, I hope that helped. Uh, the next listener we had that chimed in was Gerald and he had kind of a long post. I'm just going to touch on a couple things. He said, he started with, I just got promoted to blue belt as the pandemic pandemic went down. So I want to talk a little bit. If you have advice for people, maybe they just got promoted and it's not the pandemic. Maybe they just got promoted and they broke their ankle on a motorcycle accident two weeks later, or they just got promoted and summer vacation started and they've got four kids between second and 10th grade. For whatever reason, a lot of people get promoted and then they reach a period of time where they can't train. Um, so I, I have a question for you guys or, or looking for your advice to help people get through that. And then he also talked about, he says, a challenge for me is remembering all the moves and all the techniques and piecing them all together. And that can be an enormous thing for people to be worried about at this point in their uh, 
jujitsu journey. So anybody want to chime in on either one of those? Sure. Absolutely. So, uh, great question. And, you know, I, I always say this and you can either make excuses not to do jujitsu or you can make excuses to do jujitsu. And I choose to do the latter rather than the former. And so even with the pandemic, um, you know, whether it's somebody getting somebody in your household, that's maybe would be interested in just doing some of the techniques, mate, there's plenty of drills, you know, that we just did the arm bar triangle arm bar, um, stuff, uh, our, our professors doing remote training. So we, we still can have class in the, in our household, uh, with remote zoom kind of interactive training. Uh, so if you have someone in your household who's, in, who's interested, make an excuse to do jujitsu. Um, and, and, and I think that that applies to, you know, any situation, you know, there's, there's going to be times where it's, co- it's complicated, you're injured and, um, and you can only do a few little things. Well, that time on the mat, I, I remember whenever I was, uh, I had a pinched nerve in my neck and, and basically my whole right arm was numb. I could have made an excuse to stay off the mat. Some would say maybe I should have, um, <laughs> <laughs> but what I, what I did instead was, you know, while I was getting physical therapy from a jujitsu guy, um, <laughs> that, that, that I would, I would just do what I could on the mat. And guess what? My half guard from the opposite side got better because that side that was numb, it would be, it would go numb if I laid on my right side, which is my conventional half guard. So I started playing half guard on left side and and it got better. So that, that's why I think, you know, it's important to make excuses to do jujitsu. Yeah. Do what you can. You might not be able to do jujitsu the way you were last month, but do something that I, I appreciate that, Jeff. And I, all, I, all I would add is just the same thing we were talking about earlier, consistency. No matter what the situation is, make the best of it, like, like everybody else is going to say, and consistently do what you can. If it's twice a week, do jiu-jitsu twice a week. Yeah. I, I, uh, I love Gerald and Jamie on here, man. They, they're <laughs> like some of our uh, – they're just great great uh, listeners and, and very supportive of the, of the show. And uh, congratulations on your blue belt. I think, Gerald, look at this as when somebody asks you about your blue belt in in 10 years, they're going to say this. Remember that COVID-19 thing? <laughs> That's what I got my blue belt. You just have a story with it. And and you could take it and say, what I did was I studied guillotines or I studied, you know, daily Heva guard off the mat. And I tried my best to learn some stuff, and I just kind of did an off the mat study because I had no choice. I got much like how earlier this episode I was uh, I was studying books and VHS tapes instead mm-hmm. of YouTube or anything like or BJJ fanatics. Like you do what you can, and it, it it's it's unfortunate that you can't hit the mat running with your blue belt, but do your best to do that. And like they're saying, find find a way to train, find an excuse to train, find 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 a weakness of your of your game and work on that. Like me, I already mentioned my flexibility is pretty much a joke. I have hip flexibility. Other than that, I'm, I'm not flexible at all. I've been doing yoga every day, uh, which I could not commit to while I was doing jujitsu. It just, I'd rather do jujitsu than yoga. That's it's so much better. But, (laughs) (laughs) but now that there's no jujitsu, I've committed to doing yoga every day and I have gained a ton of flexibility in my, in my hamstrings. It's like, this wasn't that hard to fix. It's kind of reminds me of like if you start to lift weights 
after like even 20 days or 30 days, it's like, I'm a lot stronger than when I started this. If you've never lifted weights before, I've never really worked on my flexibility before. Mm. It, I went from zero to maybe 50 or 40, but that's a huge difference. You know, like uh, gaining some strength is way better than no strength. Gaining some flexibility is way better than where I was before. So Gerald, if you have a spot like that in your game, whether it's flexibility or strength or cardio, or if there, you feel like there's a knowledge gap, now's a great time to hit that nail on the head. Yeah, that, that's great advice, Byron. Um, uh, sometimes where we're the weakest, uh, whether it's being physically not very strong or not flexible, uh, those are sometimes the areas where it's easiest to make the most quick improvement. I mean, if you're starting from zero at anything, you can make a lot of improvement quick. So that's great. Um, we have another listener, Emma, and she's got uh, sort of a couple questions. One of them she answered herself. But her first question had to do with uh, – Feeling like you don't rate, and in her question, it was like you're good in gi but not no gi or vice versa. I would kind of interpret this to be like feeling like you've got a big hole in your game, like you're good at some things but not good at others. So that's kind of one question. And her other question was uh, had to do with feeling like there's a target on your back. And she kind of answered that question herself, and it had to do with learning how to escape and, and just keep training and working through it. But anybody have anything on either of those two things? Yeah, the target on the back, uh, our professor John had talked about how much of that is really in your own head because um, not much has really changed. You know, the belt doesn't do a whole lot. It's not going to fix your problems. You know, you, you're still the same person. Um, so you, I think a lot of people – I think that was part of my issue at first definitely was just putting the pressure on myself. Things that I thought I should be able to do um, were not necessarily anybody else really cared. Um, and then for the, the gi versus no gi thing, I mean – we talked about that a lot recently because I forever had just no interest in doing no gi and I would mm-hmm. use the, that class as my day off basically. And then I would just sit here and talk about how I'm not good at it. Well, I've avoided it and I've never practiced it. So I don't know why I would expect to be good at it. You know? Yeah, that's good. Um, and, and as far as feeling like you don't rate, we've, we've talked about that. You're going to have holes in your game. You're going to be deficient in some areas and you just systematically keep improving on them. And uh, so, yeah, that's good. We have and, another list. Joe, Joe yeah, I would go ahead, add Jeff. to that um, for Emma. I would say if you don't feel like you rate in, in, a, in an overall um, aspect, that goes back to trusting your coach and not worrying about that. If it goes back to, to not being able to rate in a certain position, put yourself in that position and get better. Put yourself in that position with new white belts. Put yourself in that position with two and three stripe white belts, and then you'll start getting better and figuring things out. Then go up the ladder and see see where it breaks down and see what you're doing wrong. So, I mean, I think I think that that positionally, you just have to put yourself in those um, situations. And and you know, I the first contact that I had with um, Byron and the BJJ Brick was whenever uh, you guys were talking about plateaus, and and Phil succinctly put. Well, it's not a plateau if you've never practiced it before. And I was specifically talking about my triangle was garbage. And <laughs> good job, and, Phil. That's that's great input. <laughs> and and and, uh, and he said he said so. Let me get this straight, Jeff. Um, you don't do triangles a lot, and then whenever you first try the triangles, you feel like you're on a plateau because people are you know, doing the Gracie pass and passing your guard and smashing you and, and, and all of that. And I'm like, yeah, he's like, you see how that sounds stupid. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I do. 
I do see how that's there isn't that that's not a plateau. It's a it, it's just you learning. It's just you putting yourself in that position where you're deficient. And and Byron, you as a black belt, you've you've noted your deficiencies, and I I commend that. And and, and I feel like sure that I'm going to be that way throughout my entire jujitsu campaign. And and if I'm not comfortable putting myself in that bad position, then what am I doing it for? Yeah, and with the uh, that 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 is funny. <laughs> if you're not doing them, how how are you? But uh, <laughs> it is frustrating because everybody uh, has to know how to escape the triangle choke, and so when you're just learning it, the person you're trying to triangle has likely escaped a lot of these already. <laughs> so they're bringing yeah. like you knew how to escape the triangle choke before you know how to do the triangle choke. Uh, probably because oh, you started off playing a top. <laughs> so the, just they're not that green at starting as you are when you start the, the attack. They know how to, what to be, what they should be doing, unless you want to just work on just the brand new people. But it's just, it's a little bit frustrating. Sure. Uh, but with, as far as the, the gi and no gi, uh, Phil, you, you said you preferred, and I already mixed up gi over no gi. Is that right? Yeah. And I, you take I the would... no gi days. I was like a day off, right? Yeah. Yep. So if you missed a gi day, would you still take the day off, or would you would you go to a no? I would class? still take the day off. No, yeah. I would I would still take that day off, and I just I it's something I've been working on uh, in jujitsu and everywhere else that if I'm actively avoiding issues, um, trying to address that because my excuse for not being good at nogi or never doing a nogi competition is kind of lame. Of I'm not good at it. Well, you avoid it. So how? What? What do you expect? I think you'd surprise yourself. They're so similar. Unless you're playing a lot of like lapel things and you're super grip reliant. Um, it's, I I think within a short amount of time you would say, oh, this isn't, this isn't that bad. For for me, I always tell people, just go when you can go. If, 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 the, if your gi nights are easier for you to get out of the house and go train, do that. If something comes up and you happen to miss uh, that gi night, you should still go to train. It's just going to be on a no-gi night. It's not going to be that bad. <laughs> and I, I actually have, and you're 100% right. The, I, the more I do uh, no-gi, the more I like it. It's, it's it, it was just, you know, it was me avoiding it. Yeah. Uh, that was the issue. We do like things we're better at doing. And, and there's no doubt that if you don't train no-gi, that there's people that you would submit wearing the gi, you know, or do handle very well with wearing the gi, take the gi off. They're now a handful, you know, it's like now they're choking me instead. That's frustrating. But the underlying principles of your jitsu um, will, will kind of clean themselves out and you'll figure that no gi game out pretty quickly. I, I would guess that's what I've seen every time. But same thing happens at, at my gym. You go to a gi uh, training session and it's it's full to capacity to where we sometimes have to take turns rolling. Like there's not enough room for everybody mm. to roll. And it's a big gym. And then you go to Nogi night and we get half the mat and the other half the mat of people doing, uh, you know, like a kid's class, something like that. Like, how come no, nobody comes to Nogi? <laughs> 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 That's just the way people are. But, but if I, if I miss, I try to train two to four times a week and I just train when I can. And I, I'm often having to figure out: Do I is this gi or no gi before I leave the house? Doesn't really matter. Yeah. I don't know which one. I'm, I'm sure I'm worse at gi because I basically play the same game. 
Like I, I have thrown away all my lapel chokes. I have thrown away anything where I have to grip, uh, you know, a, a, a sleeve really well or something like that stuff. I just do the same game all the time, and mm-hmm. occasionally I'll throw in a lapel choke or something like that. But I don't do a technical gi game. I just play jujitsu, regardless of what you're wearing. And I'm sure that's holding me back in the gi game. But I could work on the same thing all month long. <laughs> so it's give and take and if you want to go compete gi you got to focus on that you know there's definitely area for that too definitely are your guys' gi classes bigger than your no gi classes they are yeah right now our no gi and what actually got me back into it is the the no gi was the striking class now that we do so it's uh more about clinching takedowns uh striking situations like he was talking about and the more i was doing it i was like this is fun so i don't know (laughs) now we've we've incorporated some of it into our personal training after you know an open mat or whatever we'll we'll dedicate some time to just getting experience with no gi and you guys you guys talked about doing a little bit of striking and then and you know like light striking with groundwork talk about tapping to panic instead of pressure um a lot of times you get mad on somebody and just kind of tapping their head a little bit, like in mm-hmm. pinning an arm down. The, people want to quit. People want to tap. It's like zero damage. Like I'm not, I'm not hitting you. I'm not smapping you. I'm literally saying I can hit you here, and they and they want to tap. It's like take a deep breath and work your jujitsu escape. These these punches aren't counting. But that's a ta- that's a panic tap because it's just so foreign to be getting hit for just straight jujitsu people. And especially if you're doing this for self-defense, you have to know that and you have to be prepared for that. And it, it really helps you gain perspective on, uh, you know, kind of what the difference between the sport and the self-defense aspect of jiu-jitsu is. Absolutely. Yeah, so Phil made a good point about uh, y'all's no-gi classes kind of being where the striking is and the MMA is. I think that's pretty consistent in a lot of gyms. So if you're going to a gym and you're primarily a gi player and you hit those classes – but you would like to add wrestling or MMA or be more prepared to do jujitsu under the pressure of strikes and those kind of things, you'll probably find that uh, more prevalent in your no-gi classes. Yeah, and again, I hate being punched in the face. This class is is great for me because it's all about how not to get punched in the face, and nobody's trying to hurt each other, obviously. So I would, I would now definitely recommend giving that a chance. Because I, uh, I uh, waited it for a long time, shouldn't have. If if anybody's seen pictures of Byron and I, <laughs> you'll you'll understand we're not all that concerned about getting punched. In the face. <laughs> we have so little we're working with already. <laughs> we can't lose it. Yeah. Don't leave Gary out of that, even though he's not here. Don't leave Gary out of that uh, that uh, repertoire either. Well, he claims to be the good looking one of the bunch, though. So, so <laughs> well, he does have the glamour shot. So yeah, it's always that. Yep. <laughs> Hey, guys, we have one more listener to get to here before we wrap it up. That's Richard. And he's not asking for advice so much as it relates to his own game, but he's asking for how to give advice. And here's what he's asking about. We we talked about the target on your back. Um, a lot of times guys get that new blue belt. And even though they were getting tapped by other three and four stripe white belts before, and it was just part of their cooperative training, now they get the blue belt and they feel like, I can't tap to that guy anymore. I'm a blue belt. He, for whatever reason, their um, roles start to become a little bit more of a battle and maybe sometimes to the detriment. And his question is, you know, how do you explain to new blue belts that you don't have to defend that belt 
every time you're on the mat. If you were tapping to this four-stripe white belt two weeks ago, a week after your promotion, nothing's really changed. So I don't know if you guys have uh, experienced that in your own game, if you've seen it in other people's game, but if you saw that happen in, in somebody's game, how would you advise them? It's the same thing I was saying before about the uh, the pressure that's in your own head, target being in your own head. You know, it's this person doesn't really care, and it doesn't lie, or the mat doesn't lie. You know, so just and if they do care, it's on them, right? It's, yeah, it's not on you're you. the only one who cares, and yep. you know, it's up to you to work on it and fix it. Byron, you're, you're the coach among us. Uh, what 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 would you tell somebody <laughs> in that? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it goes back to that you're on your individual journey. Like, if you, what was what was Gordon Ryan like six months on the mat? You know, like I've been here a year. Gordon Ryan's only been here six months. I should quit jujitsu. No, <laughs> that's not real. Like, <laughs> it, it was him at six months. What was uh, Keenan Cornelius like at six months or one year versus a guy that was there for three years? It's we all progress differently, and in in you. Your, your coaches help you out, but we're all an individual journey. Some people learn things or pick things up. Some people, it's just like you show them a technique one time and they're pulling it off while they're rolling. I have never been able to do that. That's not me. Uh, it has to has to literally fit perfectly into my game in order, in order for me to do something like that. Um, so it's just everybody's everybody's different. And so, yeah, that, that four-stripe white belt that was occasionally tapping you out when you were also a white belt – they're still going to be occasionally tapping you out when you're a blue belt, <laughs> if not more, because like we, like you're talking about that target. Well, now he wants to tap out a blue belt, <laughs> and that's you. Uh, it may, and if it's motivating to fight harder, that's fine. But um, when it comes to your safety, that's you. You both have have that responsibility. But don't let anybody injure you or take the fun out of jujitsu because uh, you've turned into just trying to protect a, a little cloth around your hips. Yeah, Byron, I, I agree with that. And, um, and you guys kind of, kind of spoke to it, but I would also say, um, as far man, I'm a slow learner when it comes to technique as well. There'll be times where I see a technique like three times. It doesn't happen much anymore, but especially whenever I was like a three stripe white belt, I would see the technique and I would watch it and I would sit there and then I'd be like, um, what position did we start from? You know, <laughs> you're like, yeah. you're like, I don't, I don't even, I don't even know. I just sit there and watched it intently and I couldn't do it. But then after that technique, so every day, you know, cause every day after that, that fundamentals, you have some sparring time. Right. And I always, always, always try to incorporate at least one time, every one of those techniques into a role, even if it fails because I'm terrible at it, you know, it's, or I'm terribly unfamiliar with it, or I'm just not getting the setup at it. Even if it fails, I'm going to try that at least one time in each of the roles. Um, and that's just something I do. It's just something that, um, that it, it feels like to me, because I am a slow learner, it helps me to solidify that, that, uh, fundamental movement, uh, and that fundamental technique into my game. I love that list. And as a, uh, Joe called me coach as a, as a black belt that sometimes coaches. <laughs> um, I love to see that as well. Like if, if, if we're working on, um, I, triangle chokes and, and I go to rule with Phil and he, let's just say Phil wants, Phil typically is doing his pressure passing stuff and, and I could expect him to do that. So I'm getting ready to just, 
uh, you know, work some guard while Phil's pressure passing, and Phil just changed up, pulls guard on me, and it starts working trying to get a triangle. I I am super happy for that. Like like yeah, let's do this. Mm-hmm. Let's let's see how this works out. <laughs> yeah. Like as a as as a coach or somebody who's got a little more time on the mats, I love seeing that. And I know that his triangle is not going to be perfect because it, it, we just worked on this today as an example but whatever the technique that we work today that that he's jumping right on i love that and and we're gonna spend some time there and it, it, like i don't know i just I, I like what you said there jeff about try the technique try one of them at least and, and try to get that in because uh like we we're talking about earlier do stuff that's fun if you pull it off that becomes more fun <laughs> yeah yeah, and you might actually find out that you have a predilection to that technique, you know? Yeah. One of the one of the cool things about a lot of uh, how our sparring classes will go a lot of times after fundamental classes, it can be positional and, you know, it's kind of encouraged, you know, hey, this is what we just worked on in class from this position. This would be a good idea to try it out. And now's the, this is how you get to see how, you know, does it work, basically. Yeah, that's awesome. That's so. Uh, I know we're kind of getting towards the end of this, and Joe's been doing everything. But I got a question for you guys about your coach. You, a lot of times you'll talk about, you know, coach says, you know, you feel like you have the target on your back. You coach will say this. Coach will do this. Um, I think uh, that's a great thing. He's your coach is doing there, and having conversations about the team or about jujitsu about your progression whatever with uh with the team versus um kind of the the old style of way of jujitsu we come in we warm up we do some technique we roll we say goodbye and next time at some point in time having a even a 30 second to a two or three minute conversation about hey guys it's really important to remember uh that you both should be benefiting from this role hey guys i just want you to, to think about um, especially you new blue belts out there, you might feel like some of these rolls are harder than they thought they'd be. You know, it's just a blue belt. It doesn't change how you roll. It's just a piece of material. Like when does your coach have these conversations? Is it, is it on a regular basis? Is it when they're needed? Um, when, when do you feel like your coach is, is taking the, the non-technical side of jujitsu and teaching the, the kind of the mental side of jujitsu, if that makes sense? How often I think is he does that? it? I think he does it. More often than I realize when he's teaching techniques, uh, he'll he'll kind of maybe give a background of a situation or what you should be thinking when you're trying to do it. Um, I think I miss a lot of those, and then I think I see him later on sometimes. Um, kind of hard to give a specific example of that, but um, you know, he'll talk about with the stack pass, it's 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 a guy has a triangle and you're stacking, it's the mental, you know, it's a lot of it's gonna come down to who quits first. And if you're the guy on top and you have the stack pass and you back up and hesitate or second guess yourself, then the guy with the triangle has a lot better chance of winning that position. Um, but he talks about those things a lot. Well, he teaches techniques. Um, we are lucky enough to have one that after class, he'll just talk to us. He always asks um, if we have any questions after sparring. I usually have four to ten. Um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and also, I'm lucky enough to be able to do this podcast where he's agreed to come on twice and he just says a lot of things that i think are pretty smart so yeah we're really we're really lucky to have john plowler as our professor i mean you know 
Maybe there's jujitsu everywhere, but um, we really feel lucky for that. And he 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 does share freely of his time. You know, he he wants to see us develop as 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 people as jujiteros, and and um and he and he regularly has those uh he regularly has those conversations when he sees that we're struggling a bit in situations. Nice. That was a good yeah. question, Byron. Well, thanks, that Joe. That's very kind of you. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a blast. This has been fun. I have had a good time. Uh, do you guys have anything to add before we wrap it up? Yeah, I do. Um, you know, first off, Joe, thanks. Uh, thanks for inviting us on. You know, uh, part of the inspiration for the BJJ Campaign Podcast comes from BJJ Brick Podcast. And I've listened to you guys for, for years, as long as I've been doing jiu-jitsu. And it's it's a tremendous honor for for me in particular to come on and really share this time with you guys because because I so much of my campaign has been has been molded by by the advice of of you guys and by the advice of the 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 great that you have on the show and and we just we aspire to to help out in, in whatever little way we can with people's journey through through jujitsu. So thank you guys for that. I got really quick. I got I got to uh, ask I got to ask Jeff something before you go, Phil. Uh, yeah. Jeff. A, a guy making it to blue belt and having no concept of what visualization is all about. I'm, I mean, can, can you imagine that happen? <laughs> yeah. Uh, We're going to yeah. talk about concepts next. <laughs> little inside joke there that I'm sure Jeff, yeah. and especially Phil didn't know I was going to drop on y'all. Go ahead. Yeah. Phil. No, I, I take the, uh, I take the slow learner cake. I think, uh, I have to do everything the hardest way possible. Um, but it does feel good once you figure it out, <laughs> but no, I just wanted to add on uh, to what Jeff said that, um, going back to before I got the blue belt, listening to that episode that Jeff referenced before about, you know, the, what, um, what it took for them to give it what they look for in blue belts and if they regret it and, and all that stuff. The, before I got my blue belt, that made a huge impact on, on me and what I was trying to do. And that's, that's one of my favorite podcast episodes of any podcast out there. That was, that was really important to me at the time that I heard it. So thank you guys for what you do. Absolutely. And you guys are doing a fabulous job. Uh, I, I personally, I don't know if Byron and Gary listen to as many podcasts as I do, but I, I seek them out and I listen to them. And I've been checking you all out lately. You guys are doing great. Uh, Byron, you have anything to add before we wrap it up? This has been been great uh, talking with you guys and learning learning about you and learning a little bit from you there as well. Like, um, it's, we do have, we are kind of cheating the system because we get to talk to so many people. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. like you get to interview your coach, you get to interview, you know, talk to whoever you want or, you know, just by having these conversations, I think it does help us with jujitsu, which, which seems kind of crazy because it's a very physical thing and it's, it's on the mats, but just by like Rafael Lovato senior. Now, Hey, I should be training half for this other person that just improved everybody's jujitsu who's seeking that. Like the whole team, mm-hmm. and and it's it is just something that you just heard on a thing, and and you guys keep talking about that blue belt episode. That I'm glad you guys really liked it. <laughs> that was a killer for me. That was hard to. Uh, I had to like picking the the getting the people, and and it was just like so much work wrapped up into uh, a short amount of actual. I think it was fairly long, but it was a lot of work. I'm and that that labor. I'm glad you guys have gained from that. Um, it's- Super appreciated. It, <laughs> it made you. a big, big impact on me when I listened to it. 
when I did. And, and also we kind of got, um, we kind of got one of our episodes where we asked, um, a bunch of really good black belts, including world champ, um, uh, Joao Miao and, and many others, um, very similar questions in the same vein that you asked the, the blue belt questions. And you're right, Byron, it was harder to put together, but we were luck- luckily we were at a, a super fight and all those people were available. Oh, nice. We kind of, we kind of got it there, you know, cause we already scoped out and said, Hey, we want to do an episode like this, that, that actually focuses on the best advice that you've ever gotten or given, you know, which is kind of the same question to be quite honest. Um, but, but it was, it, it was really good and it inspired us to, to do that episode. And it was, it was tougher, but it was also uh, a lot of fun. And, and one of the, our most downloaded episodes um, was that black belt episode. That's awesome. That's good to hear. Where nice. could we, where could, uh, if, so I, this is kind of double airing. <laughs> if you're listening to this, uh, on the BJJ Brick podcast, where are they going to find you guys? Uh, BJJ Campaign Podcast. It's on Apple, iTunes, uh, Google Play, Spotify, all the places uh, you can find your your podcast. Also on YouTube if you want. It's just the audio, though. What are they going to find? Yeah, that's the same thing. I'm too ugly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> kind of obviously, it's about jujitsu. Um, what, what should they expect when they show up um, to check out the podcast? Well, um, I think we said it before, but we really don't know much about jujitsu. We're not really experts on anything <laughs> in general, but what we do have and like is talking about jujitsu and we're always willing to learn. So like what they're going to see is, is, is basically how we're learning, what we're, what we're going through, the tutorials that we're doing, maybe some bad explanations of positions that I, I do and Phil makes fun of me for, you know, just a fun, uh, a fun weekly show. It's about 45 minutes each episode. And we just talk about the, the struggles that we have with jujitsu and, and you know what, even some of the successes, even though they're few and far between. Byron, and where can they find the BJJ Brick? You got anything on that? <laughs> uh, BJJBrick.com <laughs> is the website. And then yeah, anywhere you can find a podcast, it should pop up. Uh, we also have a YouTube channel. It's also audio. <laughs> I think YouTube is nice because it kind of it, um, it just kind of preserves it. Like if my hosting thing goes away, I still have all these on YouTube. Um, nobody really mm-hmm. is watching a podcast on YouTube, even if you're even like the, like the big ones, like Joe Rogan, people hit play and then it plays in the background. Nobody's mm-hmm. watched. I don't, maybe I'm wrong. I can't, I couldn't believe if I, if I'm sitting here watching people talk for an hour, two hours straight, like I'm going to find something else to do with my eyes. Uh, podcasting <laughs> is such an audio thing, <laughs> which I'm lucky because guys like me and Joe aren't the best to look at anyway. Uh, but, <laughs> but yeah, show yourself short guys. I've seen you guys. You're handsome gentlemen. Can I get some glasses? Um, yeah. So yeah, just bjbrick.com. Uh, yeah. Also weekly show. And uh, sometimes we have, we have guests on like today. Sometimes we'll have just an episode about a topic. Uh, we kind of do a few different things, but we do like to have fun and, uh, and try to keep, uh, Try to give a little bit of advice and try to try to share some of the the hard things sometimes about jujitsu as well because I know that there are tough days out there. It's not all easy, but uh, yeah, just our goal is to keep you on the mats and uh, and get you through some of those tough times. It's awesome. I should have a better elevator pitch, but I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Man, guys, that was awesome. I appreciate all of y'all. I appreciate Byron carving out a little time of his day, and I appreciate uh, you guys, Phil and Jeff, for coming on. 
Thanks, Joe. We really appreciate it too, man. We we could have done this for hours. I mean, this is uh, it's, it was a real honor to talk to you guys and really get the advice and be able to share a little bit of uh, what we have to offer as well. All right, perfect. All right, it was great having Phil and Jeff on the BJJ Break podcast. Uh, check them out. Just search BJJ Campaign wherever you find podcasts. You probably have an app that you found this one on, and uh, they'll pop right up. And if uh, you enjoy their uh, the content we had today, you'll probably enjoy their podcast. So it uh, doesn't hurt to have a little bit more jujitsu audio experiences. And they, they do a great job over there. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun to collaborate a little bit with somebody that's doing the similar stuff. So, uh, Gary, man, I feel that uh, you were left out of that entire discussion because <laughs> not only was Gary not there, he still hasn't heard it because we're recording this before he's actually ever had the chance to listen to the, the discussion we had. But uh, I'll ask you a few of the questions or maybe Joe will have a few for you, but I've got the, the notes here because I didn't trash them our right way because I found them very, very good. Joe did a great job. Uh, so Joe, to <laughs> so give him full credit. Now you're trashing Joe because he trashed the, uh, the, you know, his notes already. Yeah. <laughs> No, uh, Joe typed up some a whole bunch of questions and different topics that we talked about, and he kind of, uh, I don't know if anybody noticed while we're listening, but Joe led this whole thing uh, as far as from our end. <laughs> he had he it was really organized, and I definitely appreciate that. But one of the things that, that Joe was asking and, and we were talking about was frustrations at the, the blue belt and the white belt time. So, Gary, what frustrated you uh, back in those days? You know that I that I lost all the time. I, I got to admit, uh, uh, I had an ego. I wanted to win. Uh, I didn't go about training the right way, and um, you know I lost a lot. I didn't feel like I made good progress, and you know I, I considered my progress by winning or losing, and uh, you know I went about it the wrong way, and uh, and by looking at winning or losing. I didn't break stuff down and, and figure out what I did wrong and, you know, uh, got better. But, uh, yeah, ego got my way. Do you remember uh, where it was in your progression that you kind of started to train differently and get ahead of that? You know, I, you know, remember when I went back in uh, a couple of weeks ago and I, I was talking about, uh, you know, talking to Byron and everything, and I was about ready to quit. And uh, I, you know, was ready to quit. I changed my style. I, I, I quit the gym I was at. I started uh, becoming like I call a lone wolf. Uh, you know, training where I wanted to, training whenever I wanted to, um, and that's when everything changed. Uh, I stopped looking at it that I was that I was a student at a school and doing what the instructor wanted and going my own way and, and just turn it into like a pickup basketball game or whatever I wanted to work on with a, with a bunch of friends. And, uh, that's really when I, 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 it stopped being a job for me. You know, even though I wasn't a teacher, I wasn't having fun. It was a job for me. Um, and you know, just by changing atmospheres, it became fun again. And that's when, uh, I realized I wanted to learn. And, uh, and the only way I'm going to learn is to, uh, uh, not worry about winning or losing. Nice. 
So uh, looking back at your experience as a white belt, blue belt, uh, what advice do you have for any of uh, the current white belts and blue belts? You know, it's just uh, put that ego aside. That that was, you know, the biggest thing that hurt me. Put the ego aside, you know, listen to people, um, listen to more experienced people. But, uh, um, you know, my biggest thing is have fun. You know, have a smile on your face. You know, this is a hobby. We all have other stuff we're doing. We're Well, some people may want to be a uh, professional grappler, professional MMA fighter. And for them, it's not a hobby. But, you know, I'm talking for somebody who started like me at 35 years old. It's a hobby for me. And if I'm not having fun, I'm not learning. Um, so have fun. Take the ego out of it. Learn. Meet some good people. Uh, but above all, have fun. That's that's good advice, Gary. Uh, here's here's one that I'm interested in to hear your side because I answered this question and it uh, we'll see how our stories match up because it, it was it was quite a while ago that that we got our blue belts. Uh, I'll just ask you this: How long did we train before we got our blue belts? You think was it two years? Was it three? What was the what's your guess? Was it that long? I was thinking it was more like a year. Was it? I think it was more oh, than a year. So anyway, Gary, tell us yeah. your story. The day you got your blue belt, what what happened? Because because you you're involved in mine. I want to hear if I remember wrong or if you remember right or what. Shoot, I just remember it was a it was a long day. Um, Eric Williams came up from uh, uh, Houston for a uh, seminar, and uh, our instructor John Castillo told me and you and Bronk and Ricky and Corley and I don't know who else that, you know, we were going to test for our blue belts. And, uh, actually I was probably the worst out of everybody there. Um, hey, so, Gary, 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 speaking yeah. of that, before you get too far, I know you haven't heard the conversation that we had with the uh, campaign guys, but uh, to this day, Byron still feels like the only reason he got his blue belt is because he whooped your ass that day. <laughs> go, go ahead, go ahead with your story. <laughs> uh, I will tell you, Byron, he would always whoop my ass back then. Uh, uh, you know, it was a one-sided affair. Um, so, you know, we had our seminar, and then after the seminar, we went to eat at Subway. And uh, if I remember right, Byron, didn't you? by Eric Williams and Johnny's food or, or did I, I don't, yeah, I don't remember. I think you bought one and I bought the other. Okay. Um, but, that's, uh, that's we went subway and we came back and uh, it was time for, uh, for a test, which, you know, we did, a we had to show a whole bunch of different moves. Um, I can't totally remember, but all from different positions. And then, uh, based off of our size or skill level, he actually had his role, uh, you know, like a real match, uh, in front of everybody. And me and Byron actually rolled together. And, uh, so, you know, we had fun and enrolled. Um, and, uh, after that, the rest is, well, we got thrown real quick. And, oh yeah. Uh, the rest that. is history. Yeah. So Gary, yep. so Gary, uh, slightly different. I tried to kill you when we rolled. <laughs> he told us, yeah. you remember he said, don't go easy. Don't give them anything. Well, I remember you Fight hard. to me. Yeah, you whispered that to me right before we started. I thought Eric like, told us to do crazy. that. Yeah, I remember you said that. Okay. 
Yeah, I tried my best, and because uh, I remember the other the other guys that got matched up with each other, nobody got any submissions. I'm like, I'm gonna submit Gary, yeah. and it didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> so that's similar. That's similar. He told me my, my half guard was basically garbage, and uh, my my best technique that was an arm bar from the guard. He didn't like that either because I didn't bring my hips off the ground. <laughs> I throw my leg over your head and just hip into it. He's like, that's not good. Don't do that. I'm like, what? That's my best move. I remember he got mad at me because I was going for heel hooks. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. But, you know, I like it that he was honest. I mean, yeah. basically, he told me and you, we're flat out garbage. Um, but he was honest. I, I would rather have that. And uh, but you know he just didn't say you're flat out garbage. Here's your blue belt. Hey, you guys are flat out garbage. This is what you need to work on. No, and, I, uh, I found him to be very, uh, like encouraging. He was he yeah. he told me I did yeah. some weak spots, which was fine. Uh, but it was like just having him in the room and and having a black belt like uh, yeah that, that would have been huge. that was that was really neat. And he was he's a he's a very cool interesting person. Uh, only met him a couple of times, but. Um, yeah, it was it was it was a blast having him around, and I felt inspired by by his presence and and by uh, that process. But yeah, he did he he didn't lie to us. He didn't say you guys are awesome blue belts. He's like, here's your blue belt. Now you got some work to do. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad he said that. You know, I'm glad that you know here's your blue belt. You got a ton of work to do. This is what you need to work on. So so Gary, another question we had during the uh, the show uh, during the part you missed. How did your game change in this blue belt range? You know, uh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know if it really did much. Um, what were your favorite you techniques? Know, I, it was uh, far side arm bar off of side control. I would. Uh, that's about the only move I could hit <laughs> with any regularity. That, that was my move. Um, I was a top control guy there. You know, and uh, I just always worked for top position. I worked for that underhook. I scooped that arm up and uh, take it. That's really about all I, I did back then. And I still even think of blue belt. I was, you know, when I got my blue belt, I was still too ego driven and uh, um, not worrying about learning as much as I was worried about winning. Um, you know, I think I was doing it all backwards and uh, I think it really hurt me. Yeah, so this is a, a good point to throw this out there. For for some people, you've got your blue belt, and you think you've got it all uh, figured out. You don't. And for, uh, for some people that are like three four three or four-stripe white belts, if your school does stripes, and you think, I'll never get my blue belt because I'll never get it figured out, you don't have to have it all figured out to get your blue belt. Yeah, shoot. I've been training 18 years. I don't have it figured out. I'm with you, Gary. Gary, <laughs> Gary how, how long after this did you start uh, pursuing footlocks? Oh, shoot, I've only been doing footlocks for the last, you know, five years maybe. No, I didn't. I, You know, and that's another mistake I made. I always heard two mistakes I made, and, and I say these are big mistakes that I made. People will tell me footlocks were dangerous, and uh, I believed it, and I stayed away from footlocks. And I also had people tell me there's a lot of injuries in wrestling. Wrestling's not very smart, and uh, you'll hurt yourself. And I believed it. And those were two major mistakes, major holes in my game. Well, you know, I don't know if uh, really early if footlocks were a major hole in my game, um, but um, takedowns definitely were. And, you know, when I started doing footlocks, 
I really started loving the sport. It was just, um, you know, we'll talk about it in the uh, uh, article of the week, but it just allowed me creativity. You know, it allowed me to uh, do some different stuff to express my jujitsu. And uh, I really liked, uh, really, really like leg locks. That really made jujitsu more fun to me. Nice. Gary, we had some uh, questions from listeners, and I think you've probably seen them, but I'm curious to your take on this one. Uh, Jamie wrote in, and she said uh, one thing that uh, she experienced was uh, it was difficult because others didn't necessarily agree with her promotion. And she put in there that some people are counting years in the sport versus time on the mat, hours on the mat. So I, I'm guessing that she was really dedicated and she got her white belt or blue belt a little bit sooner than maybe other people thought was, uh, was you know, appropriate. What I would say on that, you know, F what other people think, you know, <laughs> that that's how I do it. Like, who am I to say if you should have your blue belt or, you know, your instructor gives you that your instructor, you know, we, we talk about it a lot. We've talked about it that, you know, that, that person, if your instructor feels you, you should have it. And, and as me getting in blue belt, I didn't really feel like I had a blue belt. And I know you guys felt the same way, but you know, I don't care what anybody else thinks. If, you know, if uh, Jake Fox or Byron or you say I deserve this belt, you know, and you guys promote me, Hey, cool. You know, you guys have confidence in me and, you know, I, you know, I don't know, man. It, I just think that's, uh, if your school has rumblings like that, that could, you know, lead to some trouble. Um, you know, it's, uh, we should all be there for each other to make each other better and, uh, not trying to hold people back or, you know, talking about people, you know, behind their, well, I don't even know if they did it behind their back, but you know, it's, uh, let's, let's congratulate each other and, you know, make this room better. Yeah, something else I would add that we didn't really touch on the first time we did this, but um, five years after you, your blue belt promotion, nobody's really going to remember anything about that other than you. So, I mean, it, yeah. it, it's just a small step in a long journey once you're five, yeah. eight years past it. Yeah. You know, I'm just, uh, I'm glad Jamie's training, got her blue belt, and uh, like you said, works hard. And, uh, you know, her instructor gave it to her, so she definitely deserves it. And, uh, you know, I hope she just uh, keeps training and going and going and going. So, uh, you know, props to Jamie. That's good. Anything else, Joe, that you want to throw in there? From I think that's pretty okay. good. Appreciate you participating, Gary. No problem. Thanks for thinking of me. Yeah, we, we knew we were going to get an interview out of you eventually. <laughs> <laughs> took a few years uh, now you guys already snuck one in on me before yeah we did <laughs> uh, now i have to admit when you guys started asking me these questions i was like okay where's this gonna go are they setting me up again but uh, you know i don't care no yeah i mean you, you have a lot of good information yeah. gary and and uh, we'd like you to share that you're not just the honorary one you have some some good experiences as well and some bad experiences which are hilarious yeah <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, guys, I want to just give a, a mention of our Patreon page. Uh, if you want to support the podcast, you can do that through Patreon. You can pledge a certain amount per episode. A dollar or two is, is pretty common. And at the end of the month, uh, those pledges come due. We really appreciate you guys that are on Patreon. I mail you out a five-inch BJJ Break Gee Patch for your support as a token of our appreciation. You're invited to, jo to join the private Facebook group. And... Uh, yeah, from there, uh, you could do more stuff kind of behind the scenes. Ask some of these questions that Joe was, was asking um, today. 
uh, or on this episode. Uh, it's kind of a fun way to, to connect with you guys. Also, uh, a little bit back, you might have noticed that there's been some extra stuff popping up on the uh, podcast feed. We, Joe and I did a Zoom meeting. That was that was cool. Uh, we might be doing that again in the future. So uh, go like the Facebook page. Maybe you'll see that pop up. Although Facebook doesn't really promote Zoom meetings a ton. <laughs> uh, but definitely our Patreon supporters will get, the, will get that notification that, hey, we're going to be doing a Zoom meeting if you want to join us. Uh, ask some questions and, and interact with us on on a meeting like that. That's always that was fun. Had a good time with that, Joe. And if you skip the episode, go check it out. It's kind of a different style of of jujitsu episode that we have. You know, I'm wondering. Uh, you know, this people will be listening to this episode years, you know, down the road for a few years. Um, but this is being recorded during the uh, uh, coronavirus pandemic. Uh, COVID-19 and you know during this time where there's no jujitsu schools are closing down or shutting their doors for a uh, you know time period till this passes and uh, zoom is being used a lot to teach classes facebook live byron todd uh, uma plata today on a facebook uh facebook live along with becky which i watched and very informative i wonder like as we come out of this uh, pandemic, I wonder if like, you know, Joe and Joe, you and I and Byron were talking beforehand, how the technology and stuff in the world is going to change after we come out on the other side of this. I wonder if it's going to be used more in jujitsu too. Like, you know, maybe having a nine o'clock class at night, just on zoom and showing some stuff or, you know, is that going to be a way that as a student, I could learn easier by, you know, let's say, you know, on a weekend or a time we don't have class, I call up my, you know, I send a text to my coach, hey, I'm having trouble with this uh, technical stand-up, you know, and maybe the coach says, hey, let's uh, let's get on Zoom right now and uh, we can go over it. I just think of uh, just ways that, you know, jujitsu people are, are, you know, think outside the box, think of ways to keep training, think of ways to keep our game sharp and, you know, using this new technology that I think will help students that, you know, we didn't have this opportunity to use any of this stuff uh, for, you know, as long as I've been training. But uh, I do think it'll, you know, put jujitsu training farther ahead, um, you know, along with regular instruction. Yeah, I think some of the forward-thinking people have already been doing some of this already. Byron, I'm going to put you on the spot, see if you remember an interview. This was probably four years ago. It was before I joined the show. Oh, but my. you interviewed you interviewed somebody that had a whole library of techniques, and they had a, a Zoom type of deal, but it wasn't Zoom. It, was, it predated that. But each student would be working on their own thing. And the teacher would say, this week, I I want you to work on move 134 or whatever. Do you remember that? I do remember that. Uh, I don't know for sure who. Now, I did an interview with uh, Bruce Hoyer. I think he was. And he was. I think the guy was in South Dakota. I'm looking at my notes yeah, so, here. So, so one of us maybe can come up with a, an episode number and put it in there. I, I'll look yeah. at it. But anyway, it's just an example of something that was happening three or four years ago that was already forward-thinking and progressive. And I've noticed a lot of schools now are putting their own 
daily uh, videos up. Summer's doing Zoom meetings. Like Gary said, Byron did one earlier today. I do think that's going to be something we see pretty routinely going forward. Yeah. How cool would it be to let's just say I'm having some issues with a move or a drill or something and you know, it's Sunday afternoon and I'm thinking about it and, you know, I text my coach or I text a, you know, a student, you know, that I train with and they're just like, Hey, let's get on zoom or, or whatever. Let me, uh, let me show you, let's walk through this. I just think it's a, you know, it's a great tool we can use to further, you know, our education, further our mind to get us, uh, further, get us farther down the road quicker at jujitsu. Yeah, you're right, Gary. That's it. Th- this is oh yeah, I know I'm right. Landscape. This is changing the landscape of how we train at at a rate that uh, probably nobody can predict it. And I don't know how, why coaches, if you're not learning something about teaching or maybe interacting with your students during this process, um, you probably should. But uh, we we do miss you know, the mats. <laughs> There's no substitute well, for makes- getting in a room full of your buddies and and, and training. Yeah. Well, it makes me think about seminars too. You know, I mean, seminars, shoot, you could teach four in a weekend with zoom. Um, you know, it's a little different atmosphere because, uh, you know, you don't get to roll with that guy afterwards or, but you know, maybe you charge a little bit less and shoot, you could have 200 people logging on. Yeah. Just charge like 10 bucks for a, a one hour, you know, troubleshooting type seminar or something. Think how many people, you could have logging on nationwide, you know, yeah. like, I mean, any school could do it. You know, you could just say, Hey, you know, Gordon Ryan's going to, uh, come on at from one to two, you know, for 10 bucks. And he's going to show us, uh, you know, his now, new. Now here's what we need to do. Byron, you need to go back about two minutes and edit this. And we need to come up with a platform to make this happen. And, um, we'll facilitate it for a 20% cut. i like Uh, joe no but but another neat thing about what's happening right now is if you're watching if you've got friends that are teaching other places like in the in brazil or cyprus or or south america they're doing these zoom meetings and you can join in and it's virtual but you can actually hang out with and train with people from all over the world right now awesome it is so cool that is so neat. Yep. Hey, way to find the silver lining on that one, uh, Joe. That's really cool. I need to. I need to. I need to do that. I haven't done that yet. <laughs> yes, I need to as well. <laughs> well, I, I know uh, we, we we don't want to have everything talk about the virus or not, but you guys still need to be working out. You still need to be uh, doing some sort of training. It won't be the same, obviously, but stay in shape, stay sweaty, my friends, and don't forget to shower. Train hard, train smart, and for now, train six feet away. We'll get better. We'll get back to normal soon, guys. We'll see you on the mats. If you don't <laughs> shower, people will keep away from you. And that maybe maybe this yep. is the time that we don't uh, worry about the shower thing, Gary. Is it valid? Don't forget to wash your hands. No, washing oh, your hands. Wash your hands. That's good. Wash your hands, but let those pits stink, man. That'll keep people <laughs> six feet away. Oh, man. <laughs> Actually, probably a good idea. Thank you for listening. I hope you find the time today to roll. After all, the best way to get better at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is to do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu.